Welcome to Creative Block, where your hosts V and Sean. We interview people in creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam. We ask people on social media, yes, because we're on threads, on YouTube, Patreon, um, everywhere, if they had specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as some drawing prompts. Today, we have with us Sage Catunio. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. I'm so, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you have uh, you have such a like an amazing career because you've worked on like a lot of shows that are like really beloved, like Gravity Falls, Star versus the Forces of Evil, and um, you've all you also have a graphic novel slash webcomic on the side, and uh, you're currently a supervising director, which is all like so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, first time supervising directing um so a bit new to this job but it's been good so far yeah how do you i okay let's just kind of like get right into it what yeah. is kind of like for you the biggest difference between what you imagined supervising directing to be and what it actually is i mean honestly i feel like supervising directing is one of those roles i think the higher you get up in the hierarchy the more vague the job description is you <laughs> yeah, know like yeah, i think yeah. everyone knows what a storyboard artist does people I think don't have a super clear idea of what a director does because it's such a different title depending on mm -hmm. you know between like you know if it was a film the director is like the head honcho whereas in tv animation the director is just kind of like the uh the head storyboard artist of their particular team in a way um and I would say the supervising director on top of that is basically the head story person of any particular crew um, so generally, you're going to come up through storyboarding and then through directing. I was told by someone I would consider a mentor, Ben Juono, who's also a supervi supervising director. Yeah, that... he was on the podcast. He's so oh, yeah? great. Yeah, so everybody listening, check out Ben's episode. He's amazing. <laughs> he's he's really, really great. Um, but I believe he told me that like basically your job is to get the animatics done and on time and on schedule and on budget by any means necessary. Um, and that's kind of how I approach it. On the show that I'm on, it was unfortunately it's an unannounced show, so I can't talk about it that much. It is uh, going, it is a show that is being produced at Titmouse. It is going to be going to Apple Plus and hopefully will be announced soon, but I don't know when. <laughs> that was my first ever show where I was the first artist on board. You know, Gravity Falls, Star vs. the Force Evil, The Owl House, those were all shows that were created and showrun by people who are artists first, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Alex and Alex was a CalArts grad, so it was Darren, Dana went to SVA. My showrunner, again, I can't give specifics on, she was a writer first. And so she actually can't draw, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which is actually very common, especially for like adult animation. Sure. But I was not used to coming onto a show where there wasn't already a clear visual creative vision attached to it. Um, and someone who could speak the language of storyboarding, who could speak this visual language. On this show, it was my job to be the top person being able to do that. So in some ways, I was taking on a certain amount of showrunning duties that I'm used to seeing, you know, my showrunner do. Um, mm -hmm. Such as, you know, if someone pitches a storyboard, you know, my boss wouldn't necessarily have the skills to be able to speak on that and to be able to give notes on that. So it'd be my job to give notes at that level and then to you know, talk to my directors. Um, I mean, first first and first thing I did, um, I got to hire my own team 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so my entire story team were people that I chose, which was super, super fun. That rules. You know, for yeah. better or for worse, you know that we're going through a tough time in animation um, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to bring on some true stars to wow. do jobs that they are wildly overqualified for. Uh, my directors were all absolutely fantastic. And so I was really able to rely on them. So I hired directors, then hired storyboard artists, then hired revisionists. And then it was basically like, well, here's the scripts. Make them somehow, you know? (laughs) You figure it out, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because like, hey, there's no one else who knows better than you, even though it's my first time doing it at this level, you know? And from there... It was just, you know, we had like a kind of a loose schedule and I determined what the schedule was going to be. And I determined, you know, how each board artist is going to turn in their stuff and when they're going to get critique and, you know, giving critique. And then um, with the directors, you build the animatics. And yeah, it's, I wouldn't say I have a clear day-to-day idea of what I did because <laughs> um, it was really just like, what, what does the crew need today? Maybe <laughs> it needs notes. Maybe it needs the directors need an extra hand. Maybe you know, this or that. It really could depend. And that freedom was a little bit fun because I do enjoy, I think, a certain management side of things. I like having things run smoothly mm-hmm. whenever possible. And so I feel like I, I try to model myself in addition to like the events that Ben gave, I, I was at uh, this, oh my God, what is it called? Um, Mount Baldy, which is this mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bear with me. This mountain about an hour and a half away from here, which is the closest place in Los Angeles that you can find snow. Mm-hmm. And we were going up the ski slope um, on those little, um, oh my gosh, what's it called when you get that that gondola type thing? It's not a full gondola, but like the, the ski lifts, oh, yeah. the ski lifts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like there was a dude there who was like, oh yeah, I'm actually the manager of this ski lift. So like typically my job is to, you know, be inside to manage people and to like do paperwork and stuff. But it's like, hey, we're a bit short staffed today. So now I'm just like on the ground, just helping people into the ski lifts. And I was kind of like, that's kind of how I want to be. Like, I want to feel like whatever people need from me is what I'll do. If they need me to do revisions, I'll do revisions. If they need me to do directing work, I'll do that. If they need to, if the board isn't working, they need help, I'll board. I don't want to feel like, you know, no job is too small for me. I'm mm-hmm. here to help in a way, you know, once I set up my team, which is like, what does the team need to succeed? That's what I'm going to do at any particular day, you know? I think that's um, a great way to explain it because it's such a freeform kind of job. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's like, so it sounds like you have an emphasis, like your um, supervising style is like an emphasis on boards and and animatics. Do you, how, do you, how did you kind of uh oversee design because i because have you been a, a designer have you been through the design pipeline at all and on previous jobs well if you were talking earlier about like you know you want to get people in with their stories of their professional failures if you want stories of professional failure uh, let's just talk about design for a little bit right okay so when i was a student i was really between did i want to go into story or did i want to go into design mm-hmm. and my decision at any one point in time was basically like what was I least discouraged about at any one particular moment, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I initially, back when I was a kid, wanted to be a storyboard artist because in passing, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, but I realized it's kind of unusual for someone in animation, but I grew up here. I didn't know <laughs> that many people in the industry, but like occasionally would cross paths. And at one point saw a presentation from um, a storyboard artist who storyboard, I think like Jurassic Park or something had done like storyboards for live action. And I was like, these look really cool. 
maybe I want to be a storyboard artist. And I really like telling stories. I did always want to write. I also, I always wanted to be a novelist when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So the visual storytelling aspect is always what drew me to the medium. And so I thought I wanted to be a storyboard artist. I was able to land um, an internship at Pixar after my second year at CalArts. And I did not do great. I was definitely, I felt like the least experienced of the mentees. It was my first time in a really professional setting. I honestly don't think I was really prepared for it. Like emotionally, I don't think I was mature Mm -hmm. enough. Also for me, even though I had a relatively easy transition going from like high school to art school Mm -hmm. um, and specializing in that way, specializing down from like, oh, you have like, you know, nine different classes and you're doing all these different assignments going from that to like, you are storyboarding. You sit down at 9 a.m. and then you leave at 6 p.m. and you're storyboarding all day, every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was really difficult for me to grasp, I think. And I basically just had like a three month long anxiety attack the entire time I was at Pixar. Whoa! Yeah, it got really bad. And especially at the very, very beginning, it was sort of oddly triggered by a very specific thing. Like I forgot my laptop Mm. when I was going up to Pixar and I didn't quite... I hadn't mm-hmm. really accepted how kind of dependent I was on having my little internet friends and little internet podcasts and stuff to distract me mm-hmm. from anxiety. And so without that, I just immediately went completely insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I got nasty insomnia, which I didn't know how to deal with yet. I was so intimidated by that environment. I mean, like Pixar, it's, it's still obviously one of the top places to work, but I feel like at the time was at the height of its power, like Up had just mm-hmm. come out. They could do no wrong. Cars 2 had not come out yet. You know, <laughs> we had not yet seen um, the dark side of yeah. Pixar. John Lasseter stuff hadn't come out yet. You know, he was he was basically a god. And being around all these, you know, the top artists in the industry, it was just, it was so, so terrifying. And yeah, I just, my body literally just was like, nope, nah, you're not doing this. And I, the insomnia is the thing that really got me because I just didn't know how, I hadn't never encountered it at that level before mm-hmm. and basically when I can't sleep I don't function mm-hmm. so yep. I was just really really in a messed up place I didn't do well because of that and also just because like frankly look the other people were more talented than me let's just be real you know I was there with Mike Rianda it's funny because Mike said the same thing he was like yeah he said that he felt he was the worst one I remember that. He said he talks about it on his podcast. If anybody's listening to mm-hmm. this episode right now, check out Mike Rianda's episode and cross check because he does. I remember him thinking that he was just like, I can't draw. I'm terrible. That's so funny. <laughs> oh wow. That's like the Pixar effect. It makes I, you I feel, feel like everyone's in, it, it, everyone's yeah. in their heads and you probably felt yeah. like you were new. But I mean, I, as far as I don't know about talented, I, I, I don't know about a lack of talent. I feel like that's selling yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, look, there are definitely, like, I have like a lot of like fond memories of Mike Rianta in particular from Pixar because like he is the person who like wore his anxiety on his sleeve very loudly in a very entertaining way. Mm-hmm. And like, I have a very strong memory of like, I feel like that anxiety channeling that and turning it into something that was in and of itself entertaining made it more okay for everybody else to admit that they were freaked out. Sure. You know, mm. like I remember, I think it was him like the first week or so and like our first ever deadline and like someone put on like it's the final countdown as we were working through it it's like oh yeah let's just you know like this is wild and crazy and like let's just highlight and make fun of the fact about how you know stressful this is you know 
And mm-hmm. so it's it's less it's less shameful to say that, you know, I had to go out into my car to cry for like two hours after meeting Mark Andrews for the first time, which is which definitely happened. Oh, wow. I, to this day, to this day, I get I have a little flutter of anxiety in my chest whenever I smell the particular type of method hand soap that they use in the bathrooms there. Whoa, just, that's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, but yeah, my, Mike was really funny. He, I think, slept under the, his desk a lot. He definitely worked himself to the bone at that internship, you know? That's so interesting. And then he kind of... Mm-hmm brought it to he he talks about it on the podcast he, he brought it to owl house okay. a little uh to um gravity, gravity? Falls a little bit I yeah bet. yeah <laughs> we also we also had like not to name drop but just like show like who i was up against in this situation was like uh shion takeuchi oh my gosh in my memory she was like always the one who was like turning in the top assignments wow. like it was between her and oh my god stanley oh my god I feel so bad. I'm forgetting his name. This guy, Stanley, he was the one person who wasn't from Calards, and he always drew circles around us. Um, he oh, was yeah. just like so amazing. Um, and I think he's still up in the Bay Area now working, um, but it was like really, really talented. I definitely felt like I was really struggling. But long story short is that, you know, by the end of the summer, I at least had my sleep somewhat under control. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I definitely like, I remember my exit interview and like, I feel like it was always this big question of like, oh, are they going to hire you on? Or are mm. they going to tell you, you know, are they going to give you some constructive feedback and send you on your, on your way? And I believe Shion and Stanley got offers and I don't think anybody else did. And I was so prepared to get that like nice feedback, but no thank you, um, that mm-hmm. I think I preempted into it where I remember coming into the interview and I think before they could even say anything, they're like, so, and I was like, I responded like instantly like, oh, I had such a great time. Um, I'm so excited to go back to school and I've learned so much. Thank you so much. Like I didn't even allow them oh. the opportunity to like have to. You break oh, up I'm with just... them first so they can't yeah. break up with you. So it's been great. I, I it's not yeah, you, it's yeah. me. It's like a little bit of like, I feel like to me, it feels like a Japanese instinct. I'm, I'm half Japanese American mm-hmm. of this instinct to spare somebody else the pain of having to go through an awkward social experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, I want to spare them the discomfort of having to tell me that I don't have a job, you know, (laughs) Um, which I I do that a little bit too much. But a long, long story short is that after the internship, I was like, okay, I suck at this. I can't be a board artist. I guess I'm a designer. So I worked on my design portfolio a lot. Two years later, I landed an an art internship at Pixar. And that's when I discovered that I definitely did not want to do design in any way, shape or form. Oh yeah. Um, what? That's... How did you figure it out? Okay, so the story there. I have so many <laughs> Pixar stories. I'm sorry, but hey, you, said, you said stories <laughs> of professional Don't failure. You're, You're good. That, we want okay, stories so... out of you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so second time I was at Pixar. Um, I to this day I'm convinced that my mentor must have been like drunk or high when he hired me on because like it truly doesn't make sense why I got this job. So in my last film for CalArts. I did this little short film called Kagemono. It was about this little fox who finds this shadow mouse and gets into trouble. Um, I had one page that was little impressionistic watercolor drawings of the environments in that film. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, my mentor looked at my entire portfolio in which that was the only page with real environments on it was like, this motherfucker wants to draw plants all day, every day. Um, (laughs) And so... I was the one intern at Pixar 
Um, and also for, for those who don't know, and I literally don't even know if this is how the internship works anymore, but back in 2010, 2012, um, there were kind of two types of internships at Pixar. One was a classroom-based internship, or it was basically just, it's like taking the most intense storyboard class of your life. That was what the storyboard uh, internship was. Mm. And then you had other internships like art, where you're basically um, working very low level stuff on production. Mm. So it's actually doing professional work. Um, wow. Incidentally, I think the only reason they're allowed to do that is because they are non-union. Um, yeah. So mm. questionable stuff there a little bit, but you know, at the time it was fine. I didn't, I didn't mind it at the time. Mm. Um, oh my gosh, you got, you're drawing such lovely things and I've not contributed at all. Because no, I'm you're good. You're talking, you're <laughs> saying a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah, it's like all great. Please, please keep talking. <laughs> okay, so where was I? So. Yeah, like uh, the two different kinds of internship. And so you were wor working on the production. On, on production. And yeah. I was specifically working on the film that would become The Good Dinosaur. Do you yeah. remember that film? You yeah. probably don't. That's okay. I mean, oh, oh do you? I mean, I don't want to. No, okay. No, 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 I remember. I, remember. I just remember that yeah. when it came out, everybody in like animation, at least in France, was like, it's really beautiful. I was really excited about it because I liked this, like, I don't know. I, I like the little boy design. I was like, it's so cute. Mm -hmm. But then I don't know. And then I never watched it for some reason. Oh, you haven't seen it? No, but it looks beautiful. The trailers are absolutely amazing. I think it was one of these movies where you could tell that like, oh, this is a movie they're doing to to test out their uh, tech. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I remember it was one of those where I was just like, oh, look at how beautiful the water is and like that kind of, I, I remember those kind of comments. Okay, the wildest thing about that and like pausing, like, can I tell this story? I think I can tell this story. I'm not going to work in the art department at Pixar. Um, but, <laughs> they, so, they probably don't listen I, to this anyway. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The first time I was brought on, Brave had just come out. Mm. And internally, what they were saying in the art department um, was like, oh, Brave? Yeah, they're just going for that like photorealistic look. That's not very interesting. We're like, we, on the other hand, are so cool on the good dinosaur because we're doing impressionistic storybook style art. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so like painterly and not realistic at all. And that is going to be our big advantage. And then the good dinosaur kind of collapsed halfway through while I was making it. I swear it wasn't my fault. Um, but, um, <laughs> Sage, it was time, all you. <laughs> I wish, That's I mean, honestly, I did screw up massively, which I'll get into in a second. But I mean, <laughs> conveniently, the larger thing was that like, the, the point is that the film was completely redone from scratch. And then it got redone in a totally different style that was like photorealistic. So I was like, oh, well, uh -huh. mm -hmm. okie dokie. If you're, if you're ever wondering why the characters look so cartoony and the backgrounds look so realistic, that's why. Oh, that's because so interesting. It looked completely different. Anyway, so at the time, it was about ready to head into production, right? And they were like, oh, yeah, our story is so solid and our art style is so great. Um, we're not going to be like brave. We're going to get a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Because um, oh. I mean, like, I mean, I feel like when you're like a top studio, you're very aware of like, oh, all of our films got 99% of Rotten Tomatoes. Like Toy Story 3 got 105%. I, that is know? so true. I didn't know. That was the thing that I wasn't expecting when I worked on Feature or like when I worked on Spider-Verse is that, mm -hmm. um, it, that mentality right people there. Where people are like, that. well, yeah. 
Yeah, they're thinking about the ratings. They're thinking mm-hmm. about the awards. Like they're mm-hmm. like you're not just working on a, on a movie. You're you're mm-hmm. like working on the movie with the goal to to win all of the. And that's I think that's just a lot. That's it's like you're the younger lot. brother after all your other brothers were on honor roll and they were valedictorian, <laughs> yeah. and then like you're like you're living in the shadow of this huge family of successes. No, it's so much pressure, and I think mm-hmm. like yeah, it, it's weird. We're like then your success being a first-time director like imagine how incredibly difficult it is to get that director spot at a studio like pixar mm-hmm. and then to get merely a 92 percent you're oh suddenly God. considered a failure for something that 99.9999% of the population will never get the opportunity to do like i like to use the phrase having been through development a few times myself of like i'm very fortunate to get the opportunity to fail at this level you know Mm -hmm. um but like I can't imagine you know being in that position at such a studio like that with such pressure Mm -hmm. I'm also like kind of of two minds about that mentality where like yes I get that's incredibly a ton of pressure I get that you know chasing awards is you know uh, it's a questionable motivation at the same time I've also you know I've also developed developed primarily at Netflix where the goal is, you know, please the algorithm at all costs. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, sell your soul. Who cares about awards? You know, who cares about prestige? Who cares about making something that's... I don't want to say, like, oh, they don't care about me. Of course, they want to make things that are good, but they want to make things that are popular at any cost. And I feel like the, that's the two mm. dichotomies. Either you're awards chasing or you're chasing being appealing to every single human being on the planet, every single possible consumer base... And that's, to me, that's a little bit more soulless, you know? That's so crazy, because it's like the two extremes. <laughs> it's yeah. really, yeah, it's really the two extremes. But then it's also like, I don't know, a part of me is also just like so jaded, because when you read a couple of these articles about like what it's really like at the Academy Awards and stuff, like mm-hmm. most of the time, they just don't really watch the movies, like people yeah. voting. They, they, mm-hmm. they just usually vote for the Disney or the Pixar movies because they have a, uh, a brand name. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. they're like, oh, well, these have been good for the past 10 years. So I'm just going to keep casting my vote without watching mm-hmm. all the movies. So yeah. when you take that into account, you're kind of like, does anything mean anything (laughs) i mean it absolutely doesn't i feel like sometimes people get a little bit of a chip on their shoulder you know it's like oh well okay i get that disney is like you know the academy favorite kind of getting a little bit of an anti-disney space where it's like i don't know like Mm. this may be a weird analogy i may regret this but it's like i feel like it's a little bit like being an asian woman in a dating scene where it's like Mm. oh it seems like it'd be great because like everybody wants an Asian an Asian girl, but like, mm-hmm. it's actually pretty dehumanizing because like, they don't mm-hmm. really like you. They like the general concept of the category that you belong to, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it must be a little bit of a bummer to work at a, Pix- at a Pixar or a Disney and for people to just assume that you get this award just because, and probably to actually get that reward because people just assume you must be good because you're Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and because at the end of the day, uh, these Academy voters, they don't care about us. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. but I do feel like it's it is a little bit of a waste to pit studios against each other when, like, ultimately, the real issue is you know the fact that we just don't get the respect that we deserve as an industry, right? 
Oh yeah, one hundred percent. It's also like so crazy because, like you mentioned, this kind of like just because there's so few animated movies, like mm-hmm. then you it starts being being like a studio war. Whereas mm-hmm. when you think about studios that make live action, I'm pretty sure like Warner Brothers like comes out with a couple different live action movies, and same goes for like Disney, and mm-hmm. same goes for like all other kinds of studios. And so then they're not really, uh it's not really like a studio war. It's like actually movies pitted against each other because <laughs> yeah. they come out with multiple movies from mm. the same studio. It's really interesting. Are, are you able to think of an instance where because people have uh, getting an award or pleasing everybody or whatever, because people have that on their mind, it affected a decision in the movie or the show that you were working on? I'm just curious if like if it ever affects like like actual decisions on purpose or whether it's just a general anxiety i mean i will say like i've definitely felt i've definitely made some you know relatively minor choices in my comic Mm. out of fear of like what if people misinterpret it this way i should make make this like absolutely iron it's like when you go on twitter and you find someone has made like 20 caveats to the statement of like you know i like ham sandwiches and it's like, you know, just so you know, this isn't saying they don't like other types of sandwiches. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that, you know, sure. people who don't like ham sandwiches are bad people. <laughs> it's that kind of, it's like that Twitter defensiveness of like a desperate fear of being canceled, you know? Oh my God. No wonder you um, have anxiety <laughs> that's just living yeah. in your head like, like ham sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. That's so, yeah. yeah like, that's yeah. so true though. I feel like it's something that's been like happening to a lot of like, cartoonists slash animators just because we're like we're we're very online and we read a lot of the reviews and we 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 see everything and there's also this Mm -hmm. kind of like funny idea i guess on on 4chan that we never go on there and it's like we have a computer on the internet we're aware that this website exists so we can we're looking at the hurtful reviews for sure like we're we're reading them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, I will say I do not seek out negative feedback because, like, I went on 4chan exactly one day and I got so stressed out. I was like, nope, never again. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like, I'm not someone who's terribly good at avoiding behaviors that are bad for me, but that was that's the one I've been able to stick with. Like, nah, I can just tell this is like it's feeding a really nasty, sure. unpleasant, and self destructive part of myself. And I just can't. Yeah. I think I've also been pretty decent so far at staying off of Goodreads because, like, every single author will hammer home like do not go on goodreads ever yeah um i'll be like cool i just won't because i know it's gonna hurt my fifi yeah. you know and like we're just hanging true. on by a thread as it is we mm-hmm. the fifis are in in a fortress mode we gotta wall up uh-huh it's so true though. I feel like I feel like it's really important to to take care of yourself as an artist. And I think like that's a really good like effective strategy because you know, like creating is already so much work and it's already like so mm-hmm. draining. It's like you mm-hmm. like sometimes you just can't afford to lose time from somebody's angry review and then and then it gets you like emotional and then and then you you need a lot of time to kind of like you know like get better Mm -hmm. and and that's and all of that time is time you could have like spent like creating or like doing more meaningful things so it is i think it is really important to find like strategies that work for you as an artist yeah for, for me weirdly the strategy is like i found 
that like leaning into my crass commercialized commercialization <laughs> side of myself, I call this like my grunkle stand mm. mode. Um, like I discovered, like I haven't had time to do this in a while, but when I was still a board artist before I started directing, I did some booths at conventions, like, you know, artist alley mm -hmm. type things. And I found that I really enjoyed the process of just like standing up. I would stand up the entire time. So like, Hey, I can make more sales if I make direct connections with people mm -hmm. and just making direct sales, meeting people, talking, convincing them to buy a product was very satisfying to me and just like handling the physical product you know being able to click off tick off like i made this many sales today it helped quantify because i think for me i there is a part of me that just like wants to be the most popular dude in the whole world that everybody loves me mm -hmm. and only ever says nice things and they love me the most of every possible person and that's, you know, physically impossible to achieve. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the taking that infinite desire for love and validation that I know on some level can never truly be achieved, you know, through fans or through readership, mm -hmm. like you're, you're chasing a false god. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. I know this on some level, even if, you know, it's just like, mm, those that follow account is just so juicy, juicy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But um, what turns off that side of my brain is taking that infinite desire and just turning it into something practical of like, how many sales can I achieve, you mm -hmm. know, and making that quantifiable and turning it from, you know, again, this almost spiritual level obsession into something that is just like business, you know, it's just business. Mm -hmm. it, it takes, it depersonalizes it a little mm -hmm. bit it allows me to just kind of ground myself in physical reality. Mm -hmm. And that's what, honestly, this pre-order campaign has really been doing for me for The Glass Scientist, um, which is my my graphic novel, which is coming out on October 3rd. Ooh. And, you know, what I've discovered through the process of moving into the publishing space is that I'd kind of gotten into it because I was feeling kind of discouraged by animation development. Mm -hmm. I started my publishing journey after my very first project, my absolute baby, my beloved child um, that I had at Disney Television Animation got shelved, mm. which for me was like a massive, like worst nightmare situation. I remember when I first started at Disney, hearing a story, I think by like Yonan Vasquez, who I think had a, a show that was in development and him saying that like, hey, we had the show in development, it was canceled, now Disney owns my ideas and I will not get them back unless I can pay them like $2 million or something. <laughs> and that yeah. was like, I, I could be, I could be completely misremembering yeah, that. Yeah. But like that- It's a really that high like number. Would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exaggerating, it's like, but yeah. Yeah, he's he's exaggerating, but but the but the numbers, the, the real numbers that we will not disclose on this podcast are very high. Uh, so mm -hmm. it is virtually impossible to get your idea back. <laughs> It's extremely expensive yeah. um, to do so. Um, and that was like, oh my God, I can't imagine that happening to me. Like my, I'm not someone who generates a ton of ideas naturally. I tend to have like a very small cast of characters I care very, very deeply about mm -hmm. and losing them, ownership of them to a company would feel like losing a child, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. It's just un Dude. So terrible. It's, mm -hmm. What you said is just so true. Cause there was like a, I think it was last February. I was just hanging out with a friend of mine and I was like feeling really 
sad and desperate about like mm-hmm. pitching things not going anywhere and i was just like mm-hmm. i just feel like every time that a studio says no to what i'm pitching it's like all of my characters die and, and it's just yeah, so right? sad because it's like the only reason why these characters are alive is because you're you're it's sure. kind of like that peter pan like the the tinkerbell mm-hmm. thing where you clap and then they're alive leaving them yeah <laughs> and it's like you know like in the in the play uh in 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 and it's it's that feeling is like it's so you're like mourning you're like grieving like mm-hmm. like almost like they're real people and it's so sad well I'm yeah. So, yeah it really it's a morning process yeah, yeah yeah i've been specifically yeah i'm so glad that i was you, oh, explicitly sorry. told oh my gosh i'm so sorry <laughs> no no no, no <laughs> please 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 you first, you first? first okay okay cool um i was explicitly told that like you need to have a grieving process for your project when it dies mm-hmm. uh, and i definitely mm-hmm. needed that i definitely recommend it now for other people if they've gone through development mm-hmm. um but uh the long story short was like my first film project had died. I was super, super sad about it. I did not know where my career was going at the time. And then kind of by random chance, a literary agent reached out to me and, you know, I was like, oh, would you like to do a graphic novel? I said, hell no. I'm already do- I'm already overbooked. I don't feel like doing something new. But I have this webcomic I've been doing for several years. Do you want to look at that? I'm not expecting anything back. Uh, turns out my agent is like an absolute like legitimate fangirl that's so sweet and like a true a true fan and she got the comic and was like yeah I think this is great I think I can sell this um so in my head I was like aha this will be the great revenge <laughs> against, you know against Disney for killing my project you know goodbye animation I'm gonna be a famous author <laughs> um, and what I didn't realize is that don't get me wrong animation development can be incredibly bleak and it's incredibly difficult to get a show made but publishing is also extremely broken mm. um, and i would say it's not impossible to be, like you can get a book deal without being a famous influencer mm-hmm. i am personally skeptical at this point that you can have a successful book that sells well if you are not an influencer or if you're not one of the very lucky people who gets one of those like sky high advances. That makes a lot mm. of sense. I I think this is so interesting that you're touching on that because talking to a couple of my friends who got recently a book deal and like I did not realize how much work is put on the author to promote the book oh, yes. and mm-hmm. And I feel like this is something that's not really being talked about. I always thought that the publishing house would spend money and advertise the book. And it sounds like the author still has to do a major effort to do that. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Like, what what's your impression on that? 100%. You know, I, I think we talk about in animation, like how frustrating it is to see places like Netflix rely on like individual careers to like shout out their yeah. shows on you know on social media like everyone naturally goes like how could individual artists possibly have the reach of a marketing department of a Mm -hmm. massive corporation Mm -hmm. how are these two things equivalent they're not and they're depending on them to yeah 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 Yeah. well it turns out that is just the standard in publishing you know across the board you know they they put their mm -hmm, they put their money report behind a very small number of mega lead titles and everybody else a lot of it is you doing the work you know, 
And so I've been very fortunate that because mine was a webcomic beforehand that I had a certain built-in audience and they've been very, very supportive of the book, which is fantastic. But I mean, like, it's, it's this weird thing where like, I can't replicate this for anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't recommend that you do this very specific route. I guess my main takeaway is that like, publishing will not save you that is like it is there is a bleak side yeah once you've been accepted you know it's it's rough yeah that's so oh man you know because I feel like a lot of artists or at least me kind of mm-hmm. are in that phase of like ah like curse you animation I'm just gonna go mm-hmm. on my own merry way and it, it go to another industry that will be kinder to me it's interesting to hear that that's been your your um experience and 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 you've been doing the glass scientist for eight years so you have eight years yeah Mm -hmm. like like a really great fan base thanks to like the amount of time you've been can you tell us a little bit like what it's been like working on the comic for for all these eight for these eight years like kind of how how did you come up with the idea and like did you did you know from the start where you were gonna go with the full story (laughs) yeah absolutely so i mean i guess uh, may as well start off with a quick elevator pitch for the story. So The Glass Scientist is a reimagining of classic Gothic science fiction, such as you know, Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in a, an alternate Victorian London filled with misunderstood monsters and bubbling potions. Mm-hmm. Um, it follows a young, my reimagining of Dr. Henry Jekyll, who is trying to start a society for mad scientists in the heart of London, where they can, you know, defy the laws of nature in peace. Um, of course, he has a dark secret. If you know, I imagine, I imagine most people know the story of Dr. Michael, Mr. Yes. Hyde. Uh, <laughs> you know what his secret is. He's trying to keep it. Um, and if that secret ever gets out, bad, bad things will happen. Well, you know, the secret suddenly becomes, you know, very, very much in danger of coming out when a mysterious stranger arrives kind of bent upon destroying everything he's ever built. Mm. So that's, that's my little elevator pitch. For the story, uh, obviously, you'd be like, like mad scientists. It's for you. It's got some slow burn queer romance in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got uh, pretty men, yes, um, which is you know <laughs> not a not a inconsequential reason for starting the comic. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but let's see. Um, I actually started while I was working on Gravity Falls. I you know I'd had the story in a rough format for a very long time. Um, it's actually goes a little bit back to uh, stories of many professional failures. And the 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 short version of this was I did very, very badly at that second internship at Pixar as well. Mm. And while I was failing out of that one, I was also coming out as gay. It was a lot. That, that second summer was, it wasn't insomnia, but it was gayness. It's always something at Pixar. <laughs> That's where you go to find yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like uh, uh, being gay is much easier than insomnia. Oh, yeah. Insomnia oh, sucks. yeah. Hot take, hot take. <laughs> yeah. Hot- <laughs> It is, yeah. I feel like insomnia is like, it's like the bell jar if you've ever read that. Like it just instantly destroys your will to live very, very quickly. It's very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I knew that like, wow, I stuck at storyboarding, but I suck even more at design and trying to draw plants all summer long has made me realize that I really miss the storytelling element of art, of animation. Mm-hmm. So I applied at the same time for this training program at Disney Feature Animation. And again, I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to the story side and the art side, but really I want to go into story because I, the longer the summer went on, the clearer it was that like, wow, I should not be allowed to design. I'm just not trusted. I should not be trusted with 
this skill set. <laughs> but then, you know, the applications came back. And I remember the day like the recruiter called me who was this really sweet dude. I really like him. But like, I feel like I probably gave him a really difficult time on the phone because he's like, good news. You've been selected for the art internship. No. And I was like, but what about story? And he was like, well, aren't you happy? I was like, but what about story? Yeah. And he's like, don't you want to hear about like the silver pass and all the perks you're going to get? I'm like, I really wanted to be in story, you guys. I'm really not good at art. I basically spent the entire internship at, at Disney just trying to butt in with the story interns. Be like, guys, this is where I belong. Is, I'm really a story person. Take me with you. I, I got such bad reviews on my art stuff at Disney too at the, the final analysis. Like I remember, I think Shun Kim gave me a two out of 10. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I'm like, honestly, fair. Look, I, I feel like I... I got there and I feel like I just immediately played dead because I'm like, I can't compete with Shiyu and Kim. Yeah. Who are we kidding here? Mm -hmm. Come on. Learned a lot. There was a good internship, but I was like, it was, I was not going to get hired for that. But when I learned that I wasn't getting, going to get into story, I was like, okay, I can tell I do not have a future here if I'm in the art department, you know? So I've got to get better at story somehow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had read all those books, you know, Robert McKee's mm -hmm. story and Save the Cat, and they always made me very depressed. Yeah. Um, it helped that they tended to very much focus on, like, traditional films with kind of a straight white dude audience in them, <laughs> you know? That's fair. Save the Cat in particular just really depressed me to the point. I should probably revisit it because I'm sure there are some nuggets of wisdom in there, but, like, something about it just really, it bummed me out. And so I was like, how can I teach myself story in a way that doesn't depress me because like when I'm on my own I feel like I love this but then when I do all the things the film bros tell me to do I just get really sad the film bros, you know, that's I feel so like... funny. it's so true though what you're what you're saying is so true is like there's definitely yeah like it, it's 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 like it's like if reading all these books is reading only mm. how to write shonen and it's like but yeah. what if I want to write shoujo yeah, or yeah, yeah. like a, like a yeah. different style of writing and it's like nope mm -hmm. sorry you only get a single genre <laughs> i feel like i feel like save the cat feels like like yeah. if they're it, it like every lesson is like so over the course of the scene suzanne needs to go from not needing a man to needing a man and that's yeah, how you yeah, know yeah. <laughs> you go from a minus to a plus and then all of a sudden you have an interesting scene <laughs> or like you know there was another book i'm not going to name it because i otherwise really enjoyed this book but like it would it was you no know, Great story structure advice all the way through, but then like halfway through, it's like, and now we're gonna talk about gender and stories. <gasps> and it's like, here's what women write, and here's what men write. And there was, oh, there was like so much gender essentialism, I think, oh, during yikes. that time. You know? Yeah, yeah, dude. I feel like honestly, something that also kind of like bummed me, bummed me out with these books is that, yeah, like it's kind of like how to make women a prop one hundred and one, and that's just kind of like, mm -hmm. ah, come on, yeah, yeah. it's. But but it's but it's true that once you're able to just kind of like all right I just need to do a little bit of like mental gymnastics and just kind of take the advice and just swap out all these words yeah. for you other gotta, for other you got to read the section that was only for men <laughs> you got to yeah. read those <laughs> and, and and you try to you try to you try to apply both of the advices yeah yeah mm. oh my gosh yeah. Uh, but yeah, the long story short was that, you know, I was like, how do I make this fun for myself? And I was like, well, maybe I'll just try taking the story that I've had in my head 
for ages and like actually try to hammer it down into a proper structure. So what I basically did was that I would go to my trainee program every day and then every night I'd go home and write one scene mm. from The Glass Scientist. Mm. And just over time that became a draft and then that became a second draft and a third draft. And it eventually evolved into what would become the outline for the final story. And it hasn't changed a ton since then, which is kind of fun. I mean, like, I think there are like some significant things that have changed, but I am still largely working off of the story that I meant to write at that time. Um, so that, that's how it, that kind of got started. Um, and then I decided to actually start making it because initially I was like, this is a story. I, I don't know what to do with mm-hmm. it. Was um, I finally landed my first storyboarding job on Gravity Falls and kind of had like a little mini version of what happened when I was at Pixar where like, oh my God, this is my dream job. I'm so excited. But then having the realization of like, oh, this now means that all day, every day, I'm working on somebody else's stories, Yes, you know, mm-hmm. and going from, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, school where you're working on your own stuff all the time. That was kind of hard. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted an outlet for my own creativity. And so I was just like, a webcomic, why not? You know? Uh, and I actually started it with um, a prequel comic. Uh, it was called Bleeding Heart. I funded it through Kickstarter. That was really good. I definitely always recommend that people before starting like a long form epic story, definitely try like a little mini story to just test out the process of creating, get all the kinks worked out, figure out how much you like the actual process of making a thing. Yeah. So I definitely recommend that. It was very helpful for me. And then that campaign did quite well. And then off of that, um, I was like, well, I've got some momentum. I may as well make the comic now, you know? And so that's basically what I've been doing ever since 2015. Wow. That's so, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. And I, I totally relate to what you're saying about like, you're working on other people's like ideas and then you start to feel like, but what about my ideas? And yeah. Mm-hmm. so that's also really interesting that you did the Kickstarter. Do you feel like, mm-hmm. So what was your idea for the Kickstarter? Did you want to like, uh, uh, what were the goals? Were you trying to get it printed or were you trying to uh, get yourself paid for a little bit while you were making the comic? Honestly, I feel like my goals in publishing are often more just like emotional goals, <laughs> you know, because like, I was fortunate like, I had a full-time job. Um, so I was doing fine in that space or just, it felt just like, well, like real comic artists, you know, real indie comic artists do Kickstarter. That's so true. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, if I'm being real, like that was sort of the motivation also for, you know, traditional publishing. I think I've heard other people talk, about. I, I don't think it's just me being super, super shallow, where I think a lot of the motivation for traditional publishing nowadays, because, you know, it's no longer the only vehicle to get your books out there. If anything, indie publishing makes a lot more financial sense for a lot of people. Mm. The main draw for traditional publishing is that validation, mm-hmm. that institutional validation mm-hmm. that like, this is what it means to be an author. And I think that in a weird way it was kind of like everyone that I looked up to had done a Kickstarter. So like I want to be like that to be real and it was initially it was also just like to get some money to print the thing because mm-hmm. you know, it was already done I was just looking to you know make enough money to like do a small print run I see and you know it, it blew past that goal in the first day which is super great love that oh <laughs> that that's was amazing. awesome wow yeah but again very it was a very modest goal I will well, say what that was, much what but, was the goal mm-hmm. I have a theory okay here's my big theory mm-hmm. I have a theory that if you're going to do a kickstarter you should aim for 10k maximum because 10k is manageable mm-hmm. but anything over 10k is 
a stretch. I aimed for a thousand. Oh, okay. Whoa, nice. okay. Yeah, Extremely yeah, yeah. low. Yeah, yeah. It really was the, the simple calculation of like, how much would it cost to print 300 copies of oh, this? Oh, nice, nice. That's Perfect. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was very, very reasonable. And, you know, I do think that is kind of the nice thing about only, you know, really, I'd already made the thing. So I was just trying to do the physical printing costs nice. of this. Uh, not having to you know pay artists or anything so that helped i do agree i feel like there's something about having like that lower threshold for success mm. i think my theory which is purely observational i have no idea if this is accurate is that like it just looks nice if you could hit your goal that's you that's know? what i think okay. that's what yeah. my that's what my theory is it's like it would mm -hmm. it's better to hit the goal and like people mm -hmm. go past it rather than exactly not hit the goal yeah and like part of me like I really am curious about the psychology of things like this. And again, this is pure speculation, but it's like, I think online, there is a massive stigma around perceived failure, if that makes sense. And so like, if you are already perceived as successful, then they'll often motivate people to want to get on that success train and to yeah. help encourage you. Whereas if you see someone floundering, I think, that just like it makes people stressed out mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like i do feel like there was like an unspoken rule you know in, in social media that like you're not supposed to talk about your fa failures you know unless you can spin it in an inspirational way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know like i'm comfortable telling my stories about pixar because like i'm doing pretty okay career-wise now and i don't feel the need to go back to pixar yeah you know? yeah yeah totally yeah. Mm -hmm. it's my understanding that like author world is just like this morass of anxieties because people there is this feeling that you have to present this version of success mm -hmm. for yourself and so you keep all the failure inside ah, ah, for only you ah, and i don't love that um that's probably my, my one of my less favorite parts mm -hmm. of it you know i think there is also an aspect of like there is and i can feel this in myself as well that when you are not being successful to to when you're kind of begging for people's money or support for it to come off as a little bit blaming you know mm -hmm. like why didn't people support me what's wrong with you why aren't you clicking on yeah. this i feel like it's like old school like tumblr culture oh, yeah of like you know like why isn't anyone talking about this you know if you're a good person you won't scroll past this ah. And like you can't control people that yeah. way. You're just gonna make people scroll past it fast. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. <laughs> it feels whiny. It feels like you're watching someone have a breakdown. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's complicated, right? Because like it does require that you are presenting a curated version of yourself while giving the impression that you're being authentic. I think that's what gets to me. Yeah, that's that's you know? very true. I think that's very interesting that, the way you phrase it because that's very true. You're trying to, like, you're trying to project this image that you're you're you and quirky and it's a hundred percent the real person but it's not <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 it's like where does that yeah. failure go it's like dr jekyll and mr failure mm -hmm. like there's like like a secret like <laughs> failure inside that's like oh, you know like just waiting yeah. to pop out like 30 years down the line <laughs> i mean i think that was also like one of the reasons i was drawn to the story of jekyll and mr hyde in the first place and something i really want to capture in my own version of dr jekyll um, I think so. A lot of adaptations of Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, um, lean in on this kind of like angel and devil oh, kind of version of them. Where like Hyde is this like impossibly evil dude, and Jekyll is like poor, cowering, sweet, innocent man. <laughs> I saw Doctor Jekyll 
as almost a more powerful one where like I want to do a version of him where like he starts off the story almost completely perfect Mm -hmm. you know he is he has like the best social skills he is so articulate so gentlemanly so perfect he smells good (laughs) everything is good about this guy and then I wanted to slowly peel back all the layers to reveal the juicy vulnerable little heart inside Mm -hmm. um so that was like that's something I find interesting because I think part of it like I'm probably some shade of you know neuro uh, not typical (laughs) and I have a really difficult time in real life Mm -hmm. seeing past the surface version of people Mm -hmm. I think and I think that's what draws me to fiction in general that Mm -hmm. it's like you know you can't just go up to somebody and ask what their darkest darkest secret is but you can read a book and like they're gonna tell you yes you know and like that is so fascinating to me because I just don't pick up on that stuff very easily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah so that's um something that I like in fiction and then conversely what I find so kind of scary about social media you know Mm -hmm. or I know I think there are people who understand how to navigate that space and understand you know the masks that you have to wear and how to the layers of irony and this and that oh that is just not not me I can only operate the closest I think I come to being able to operate in that space is that I just receive influencers and youtubers and this and that and whoever I follow I take them at face value and then I just kind of understand as like an underlying belief system that I actually don't know these people at all yeah I see what you're saying that's really interesting that what that you mentioned that is that like you because you have to be doing like that gymnastic of like okay I like I'm watching this video and I feel like I know this person but I have to remind myself that no I don't actually know uh-huh. this person mm-hmm. yeah that's it's the that's really interesting kind of relationships that people start forming mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. uh yeah where you, you feel like you know them because so much of them is public but that's only the public mm-hmm. face you're only getting to know Dr. Jackal everyone has a Mr. Failure in there mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. right yeah yeah and I don't I think it's like getting up there into those like supervisor roles and also you know being in the position of a creator with a readership Mm -hmm. I also try to be very aware of like the dynamic within that and you know there's so many stories of like you know Justin Roiland type stories Mm -hmm. etc like you know people who really like abuse their fan base and take advantage of that position of power and I kind of whenever possible want to do the opposite of that where I try to keep a little bit of like a professional distance from folks not out of a desire to be like oh I'm so much better than you but just kind of like I'm aware that there's a power dynamic and I don't want to even accidentally take advantage of that you know yeah it's really yeah and I know exactly what you mean because uh sometimes like ah, this weird it's this weird thing because it's like as a creator now you're kind of expected to interact with your fans or if you don't interact Mm -hmm. enough then it's kind of like people lose interest because they want to have that relationship Mm -hmm. but then you also have to like you said be very like 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 cognizant of it and i i've definitely like even with like the rodney fan base sometimes i'm just kind of like i I have to to be really careful just because i'm like I, Mm -hmm. i just i want them to know that i care about them because they're the fans so i love them but i also want to be like i i can't be your best friend like this is not healthy (laughs) i know yeah yeah Yeah, i I feel like yeah i just feel like there's uh so there's a recurring theme here that we come back to over and over again where Mm -hmm. um it it starts at 
uh, how how uh, like when we're one person making a thing on our own, the society and the audience perceives us to be a company full of people, and so their critiques mm. hold us to the same standard, which makes getting uh-huh. the, the critiques extra harsh. And then on top of that, we're the promotion department. We 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 have to promote mm-hmm. everything, even when we're mm-hmm. working on another thing. We're expected to bring our promotion department and now we're the hr department too where we have to keep Mm -hmm. our personal Mm -hmm. lives separate from them so nothing inappropriate happens it's just interesting how people have to like companyfy themselves in order like like you have to keep Mm -hmm. that like professional Mm -hmm. wall there when you're like you you were talking about how how when you work and you and you have to and you keep a a wall up and handle it you know like a business like what are sales what are whatever in order to emotionally shield yourself it's so interesting yeah i mean i think i feel like everyone kind of has like a public facing persona if they have like any kind of interaction with uh any kind of fan base mm-hmm. i feel like the one i have cultivated is just like exhausted worker <laughs> you know i mean i'm not sure if you can see behind me like you right behind me and i realize that the podcasters will not be able to see this i have a, a growing kingdom of cardboard boxes behind me of I like to get myself into like absurdly bizarre professional situations of just like, I have to ship a thousand little packages out to the people who pre-ordered my book. And just the the exhaustion of having to do that is actually quite healthy for me um, in combating the existential fear of launch day, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. of the fear of failure. It turns out does have a threshold and it cannot survive a thousand you know, little packages. Um, and I feel like that's that's the person I also come to with like social media stuff of like, I don't I don't love the idea of TikTok. I don't like putting my face out there. I'm never somebody who is going to be able to do like cute little skits about my book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's never going to happen. I can't explain it for some reason. That is the breaking point for me. <laughs> but I will do 50 videos of like, look how messy my apartment is. My life is a disaster. Oh my God, why did I put myself in this wacky situation? Like that for me is funny. (laughs) I agree. I think, I don't know. I was just like talking on stream the other day about how I relate to Asmund Gold. Like he's a streamer that like doesn't... Mm take care of himself at all and people were like you cannot relate to him he's, <laughs> but he's never like... eaten a vegetable that he ate of his first vegetable live on stream and <laughs> like like it's it's oh. super ridiculous okay that, that, that's a lot that's and a it's lot like he, i remember watching one of his videos where he's like yeah i just never go to the dentist it just has to to hurt real bad before i it's like it has like oh my he God. just yeah <laughs> but i I think for me, I think it's kind of like that thing that like kind of like trope that I also really like. It's kind of what you're describing about yourself where you're like, like, oh, look how everything is just so out of control. Isn't that so crazy? (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, like, I mean, you're talking about that streamer. I do have to caveat that like by, I think of the ways that one's life can be out of control. uh, Mine is definitely not. I feel like mine is very much the Burbank version of out of control where it's like i've got too many model airplanes Um, (laughs) there's nowhere to store them i I don't know how to hang a shelf how do i where do i put them i don't have a hammer like because of my history yeah Mm -hmm. because of my history with insomnia like i am very religious about i need to get my eight hours i've never been able to pull an Mm all-nighter i can't drink because of my japanese genes it fucks up my heart 
um I, mean, I can get going a little bit but like i literally have like a like a weird like heart rate response to it mm. i have a pathological fear of anything smoke related so like i don't have fun in ways that most people would consider fun a lot of my life is very boring and to some extent i like having routines and stuff but like then there's i guess you know the mr hyde side that occasionally just like craves chaos and i think that's the part that finds humor in like the cardboard <laughs> kingdom or like yesterday we just found a gigantic solid wood desk at a construction site and then just like carried it home um and then like i almost sweated to death but like it got me through because i'm like this is a weird thing to be doing today <laughs> you know <laughs> and sometimes i just like to do a weird little thing just to like bring a little bit of spice into my life <laughs> so. in, in the same way that co like cottage core exists it makes me want to draw exhausted worker chic like like yeah. like as like either as a fashion sense or as like a like a mm -hmm. workspace oh yeah absolutely that's so funny that's so true though i feel like yeah exactly i don't know i wonder sometimes i wonder if it's like a millennial thing right like the exhausted mm -hmm. worker i feel like now i'm always worried about how the new generations are gonna like react to like the, the our dear tropes like our dear millennial tropes mm -hmm. <laughs> like because i i, I oh, appreciate yeah. that trope a lot and i feel like now it's just like no you gotta do some self-care and just like touch some grass <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah absolutely. i mean like i feel like you know, millennials already cringe um it's already happened i don't know, i feel like to me the worst thing would just be like trying to pretend like you're not cringe and trying to be like forever young oh yeah 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 that's true I would like to age like with some decent level of grace if possible. <laughs> but I'm trying to stay bussy. I don't know. I feel like to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is your journey. Join me on my join me on my journey to stay bussing on my TikTok. <laughs> it's a, a it's just like a daily journal where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna try to stay fresh. We're we're doing research today. I, mean, like, I say that you know I just want to age gracefully. I think. Earlier this year, I went um, I went back to therapy for a little bit, and that was actually very, very good. And she was really getting me to work on my work-life balance. And I think that, that was actually really helpful. Like the, the fun little trick I came up with was that like, you know, I work all the time, every day. Um, I feel like my the character I relate to most is Carmi from The Bear. Mm -hmm. Very much of just mm -hmm. like, I had to Google fun the other day. I'm like, yep, mm -hmm. I know that. Yep, got stuck in a fridge because you... Um, you were too overwhelmed by too many things you had to do and just decided to do none of them mm -hmm. relate to that. But I came up with a strategy of, I found that if I just, you know, tried to tell myself, no, you need to take more time for yourself because you deserve it because you're a loving human being with value. My brain would go like, fuck, you know, you're not. <laughs> fuck you. That's bullshit. That sucks. Get it. Get out of here with that. Like wishy-washy nonsense. But if I told myself, no, you're something much more important. <laughs> than a human being with value. You are a worker <laughs> and you deserve your lunch break. You, you, you cannot give your time to the capitalists. You need to earn yourself back. And I was like, yes, I have a state mandated personal hour. I'm not allowed to work. Um, and that was working for a couple months. Um, then the book two, book, uh, book two deadline hit and that kind of went out the window, but I know that there is a healthier lifestyle somewhere that exists that I'm capable of achieving that I have unfortunately voluntarily chosen to um, uh, forego for the time being because of this current crunch time. Mm. But like, 
it exists in theory somewhere. Yeah, that's like, oh, that's so tough, dude. Because I do feel like when you're a board artist, especially because when you, because did you, you started on Gravity Falls, but then you worked on mm -hmm. Star Versus, and that's a board-driven show. And those are like mm -hmm. really tough. So mm -hmm. uh, when you work on these shows, like you have to put so much of yourself in it. And you, you, I have this theory that like if you're gonna be a board artist and you kind of have to be a workaholic because I feel like it's a, like that personality type yeah. just works best just because it's like the demands for the job are so high. So getting out of it, I will say I worked very few late nights as a storyboard artist. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. tell mm -hmm. us your tricks. How do you help? Help me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like I said, I'm like a habit oriented boring Burbank core motherfucker <laughs> where I just I'm like I know how to regulate my energy levels mm -hmm. where like I have creative thought processes at the beginning of the day and so I get, always have this very solid routine of like coffee breakfast to work for a couple hours kind of plan out your creative decisions for the day and then it's lunchtime you come back you're sleepy it's hot outside you're tired and then you just execute while listening to a podcast mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes sense and so like i could just be very very regimented in that way and so i was actually able to you know go through almost my entire storyboarding career doing very very few late nights in that way i think it also helps that i didn't work at cartoon network because i've heard stories yeah <laughs> yeah you know yeah i feel it's true i do feel like cartoon network uh i don't know i don't know what it's going to become now just because of like the current state of things mm -hmm. but um mm -hmm. i definitely feel like cartoon network had that uh vibe that it was just because when i was there it's just this thing where it's like it's it, the shows are hand-drawn and so you need to 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 really make the boards super tight Oh, so tight. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh my goodness. And and then and then on top of that, it's all board driven. So you have to write everything. It's just a lot. It's just it's just a lot. And then it, and then I think because they started winning a bunch of awards, everybody kind of got in their heads about it. And then it was just like mm. we gotta try to make the best, be... most beautiful boards possible. Yeah. Yeah, I just got to be this thing where it's like it's gotta be better and better and better. And then there's a moment where it's like you 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 can't keep the growth going forever you yeah. have to at some point be like okay just stay at sustainable <laughs> well, i think that, i think that the the late night thing comes in a little bit more when you're trying to balance working on a show and your own artwork yes uh and i think a lot of people yes that was yeah. definitely the case for me yeah i mean that's i mean i say i i i think also a major reason possibly why i didn't many do many late nights at work was that like well i gotta go home and do my comic mm -hmm. you know sure. And as a result, I still have worked most a ton, a ton, a ton of late nights, but on that specifically, I do think there is something to being able to switch gears a little bit, you know, and I think I, I feel like I still get like a little bit indignant about the idea of having to work late at my day job, yeah, you know, true. or it's like, no, this is for me working. You're robbing time, me, you know, you're robbing me yeah, of my, exactly. my art time. Yeah. You're robbing the night worker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right yeah. that's so that's so true that's so good that like oh, man that's so good that the comic helped you do that because i feel like it's interesting because you're saying that you work on the comic at night and i think a lot of mm. uh artists we were just having this discussion on discord um with the creative block 
uh, patrons, where sometimes it's really hard to find the energy to work on your personal work, mm-hmm. at, like at night. How do you yeah. how do you psych yourself mm-hmm. up to be like, all right, now now I'm doing the comic. <laughs> Um, again, like it could be just I am a very habit oriented person. Number one, uh, number two, I do think once so you get into like a groove, if your brain just expects so, like, okay, it's time to go home and then snap into this other mode, mm-hmm. um, that helps. So having like a regular schedule helps. Also, again, kind of like how I regiment out, you know, morning <laughs> work is creative work, evening, afternoon work is like grunt work. I would tend to do all of my more intense work, the roughing out stage on the weekends, and then weeknights were for inking and color work. So just things that were like a little bit more brainless. Mm -hmm. And again, you put on a podcast, you put on a show, and kind of mentally it was like, oh, I really wanted to an episode. I I really want to watch an episode of, you know, How I Met Your Mother. Guess I got a draw, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So really linking those two things in your brain Mm -hmm. is really helpful. Though I I also, I do kind of want to highlight that like, I think there have definitely been times when I've been kind of a little bit mad at the comic for, poss- you know, robbing me of my 20s to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like, what if I'd come out as trans earlier? What if I'd have had more normal dating experiences that weren't constantly being, you know, shortened by, you know, oh, got to go back to work, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a decent amount of chance that, like, I think in the years before I had the comic, I was just like a huge bitch all the time and was like, I hate staying out late. I hate going to club. I hate all of this. <laughs> it all sucks. And so I'm probably just like projecting out this like fantasy euphoria version of what it would be like to be young and do nightlife things. And in fact, in reality, I almost certainly would hate it. <laughs> but like, there is still like, there's a, there's a sense sometimes of like lost youth you know? Yeah, I think that's something that's very interesting that you're bringing up, because I do feel like that is something that happens pretty often with artists in terms of like, Mm -hmm. you you grind so much to like, get your show picked up or like develop or like, you know, like be everywhere and, and stuff. And there's definitely this part of your life that can feel like it disappeared. Uh, I think that's a really Mm -hmm. interesting point that you just brought up. Yeah, like, even going back to when I was in school, um, I had this sensation often of like, I would have to like copy off of my non-art school friends' life experiences. Like I was like, mm. you know, cheating on a test. And also I came out as gay probably a little bit late because I was, I feel like, you know, this is entirely possible. This is just my impression of the school, but it felt like at CalArts, there was this big divide between the character animation people and everybody else. Mm. And it felt like the character animation people, like we were the ones who were professional. We were focused. We were artists and we were going to get jobs out of school. Mm. And all those other people, you know, they're just like frou-frou and they're out there partying and having sex and not being serious people. (laughs) It's that meme that like, I studied the blade while you were. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, like it's complicated though, because like, I do think there's something to like, it is incredibly difficult to get into these professions. And I think, you know, college is so expensive. Mm-hmm. And the idea of spending, you know, so many tens of thousand dollars a year and to not even be able to get a, you know, to to spend it partying as opposed to getting a job, it does even to this day feels, you know, like, oh, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like I had had friends who were 
having fun and learning how to have valuable friendships and things like that and date and become gay and all of these things. And I, I came out because I was at Pixar the second time and at least I wasn't, because I said I wasn't having a total anxiety attack the entire time, but <laughs> I was on one level desperately trying to do well. On another level, I think part of my brain was like, I just don't want to draw leaves anymore. I'm so tired of, I drew so many leaves, you guys. I can draw leaves so well right now. But like, there was this one time when they had me like redraw a fern for a whole week and I couldn't look at ferns for like five years. So it was, there was a level where it was just profoundly boring to the point that um, a casual crush on a friend finally bloomed into something closer to an obsession mm -hmm. in a way that finally forced me to come out as gay out of pure boredom, possibly. I was like, I was finally so bored with my with my internship and drawing leaves that I just had to be gay. <laughs> but like, I was out, I feel like I came out after every one of my friends came out because in my brain, I was like, no, being gay is for people who don't have a job. <laughs> okay, that sounds ridiculous, oh but like, you know, like, like- Hot take, hot take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sounds, I, okay, uh, to, to explain that in a more sensible way, it's like- I love it. I, I didn't know any gay people growing up. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, we never talked about sex. We never talked about dating. We never talked about, it wasn't like taboo in like a religious way. Mm -hmm. It was this very specific attitude that I grew up in, in the environment that I was raised in of like, oh, that stuff is for other people. Mm -hmm. For, you know, like we, like that's not like us because we are smart and talented mm -hmm. and we don't need, you know, drugs or drinking or sex or anything because mm -hmm. like we're just smart mm -hmm. yeah. you know we don't make mm -hmm. our lives harder than it needs to be by our, yeah yeah or, or just like those things are silly and frivolous mm -hmm. you know that is so that's not important that's so interesting it's so funny that you mentioned that because there's definitely especially in like philosophy and like in, in a lot of like a stoic type of um yeah philosophy so you're, it's like all right no we're just gonna think like important thoughts and we're just gonna mm -hmm. do important work and you know it's kind of almost yeah. this thing where it's like i'm i'm a, a spirit and i'm not a body so any earthly mm -hmm. desires is just like um it in a way it's a it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit like christian too you know in, in some kind of a way where it's like oh this body is tied to mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. that's really interesting that's really interesting um because it because it because yeah. it does tie with the work and like the like the ethic and like all the the workaholism and everything oh it's absolutely tied to the workaholism 100 <laughs> i mean i feel like that is now like a major like philosophical difference between me and my parents who you know grew up in the boomer generation mm -hmm. i think very much had this impression of like you know oh i was a misfit but because i worked so hard now i have value and like capitalism and capitalistic society has kind of validated mm -hmm. um me in a way that perhaps I didn't get, you know, at home. Um, but, you know, I think now millennials and younger are like, nah, like capitalism does not always validate you. It does not owe you anything and your hard work will not necessarily be rewarded. But I was very much brought up on that meritocracy mm -hmm. space, sure. you know? And yeah, I think being gay was just seen as something that was like, silly and it specifically self-absorbed is the one that comes to mind interesting most, you know? yeah it's like of mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. like oh you just can't like you're so obsessed with yourself that all you can do is like navel gaze all, all day about 
you know, who you have a crush on. Like, that's so silly. That's so stupid, Mm -hmm. you know, and gender even more so, (laughs) you know, I mean, I don't think that was even like on the radar, but like, I still have to kind of fight off impulses of just like, oh, you just want to be special. You just want attention. You just want this or that, Mm. Um, which is hard because like, I also, in addition to that, want attention and to be special, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's so true. It's so hard. It is like so hard Mm. to kind of like undo all these like little knots. But I do feel like, I feel like as an artist, you do kind of have to to have these thoughts because creating Mm. in a way is it's a little bit of a selfish act. Like you have to be so invested mm-hmm. in your ideas and have like a certain level of, I wouldn't say narcissism, but at least delusion that mm-hmm. like my ideas are great enough that I need to pursue them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I had a figure drawing teacher um, when I was in high school who I could be, I, I'm probably completely misremembering him. And on, you know, I feel bad if I'm wildly misquoting this poor dude, where he would talk about, I feel like a lot of when when you're teaching like high school level kids, I think especially, a lot of what you're trying to do is to get them out of their comfort zones and to get them to take risks. Mm -hmm. Because like, look, uh, the the vast majority of people who have talent, but you know, aren't professional artists yet, they, I feel like their biggest flaw, and this is definitely the case for me, was being kind of too conservative with your work, Mm -hmm. you know, wanting to stick to poses that you know you can hit you know, drawing things, if you're, if you're afraid of backgrounds, you're just not going to draw backgrounds. If you're afraid of drawing hands, you're just going to avoid drawing hands and just avoid, avoid, avoid. Mm-hmm. And as a result, your work is going to look, you know, safe and it's going to look samey. You're going to see yourself res- repeating what you perceive as your strengths over and over again. And so it's a big thing to get people to take risks, to be bold. And one of the ways he described it was like, you have to think of yourself as like the most selfish and egotistical possible creator which i believe he described as like like an opera director oh interesting you know, like imagine yourself as if you're making an opera that's so like interesting. you have to be so arrogant and so full of yourself and believe that you were like the greatest person on earth in a very specific controlled situation you that's know so funny mm. that's so interesting i love this analogy because it's Take yourself true. very seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, and like, and like, kind of like that whole thing where like, you, like, don't, like, to not worry about being too grandiose. I guess that's mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah, and like, I feel like even in like a very physical way, like imagine yourself like you know doing a figure drawing, and you know I think as a beginner, a lot of times they look very stiff and they look they're very carefully carving out these little lines and about so making a so careful yeah. and so so tight mm-hmm. and what you want to get to a space when you're making these like whoosh, these big whooshy lines and you're loose with your arm and with your pencil and you're getting this energy in there and you can't do that unless you have this you know arrogance in this very specific creative context you yeah. know yeah, my yeah, arm yeah. rules it's definitely yeah. gonna do the right yeah. motion yeah i think i definitely like i do that sometimes when i'm struggling of like I'll definitely like, you know, earlier this week, I have to do these illustrations for this like little vampire story that's going to be in book two. Um, they're supposed to be like really fun and sexy and, you know, spicy. But as I was like, I'm so exhausted. I just don't have the energy for it. So before kind of figuring out how I was going to thumbnail those things, I just watched some like song sequences from Moana, which is like, I think some of them, for the most fun and bold mm-hmm. song sequences I've seen in a really long time. 
and that kind of like gets me into that energy space of like getting you up and energetic and excited and also like excited to create mm-hmm. so. that's really I, I i think that's really interesting that what that you mentioned um that you mentioned that about like being excited to create because it, it it's it's definitely something that you have to cultivate as an artist in order to uh, psych yourself up. Because I feel like when you draw so much all the time, like it can be easy to just like feel like it's just work, and then you're like, okay, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do this tonight because I don't have the inspiration. But mm-hmm. like, uh, what like watching inspirational sequences is a fun little trick to overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the part that I'm still struggling with as someone who like is pretty regimented about, you know, getting to work and staying consistent is more just like, how do you be a human on top of that? You know, like, how do you maintain personal relationships? How do you <laughs> um, avoid just like being in a little cave? <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, are you guys familiar with the musical Sunday in the Park with George? I'm not. No, no, no. Okay, so Sunday in the Park with George, um, it is a Sondheim musical that is very much about the creative process. Mm. It is a fictionalized story about George Seurat, uh, who created that like famous pointillist painting. Mm-hmm. And it's basically about him and his quickly deteriorating relationship with the girl, his girlfriend, who is just like, why are you always working? And I feel like it's simultaneously a very fair depiction of both the frustration that a partner would feel in that situation, but also I think so, so beautifully captures that obsession and that compulsion to create Mm -hmm. and the feeling that like you just it's just something you have to do and there's beauty in it and there's terror in it Mm -hmm. um but just I don't know like sometimes I I feel like a little bit like an insane monster for having this particular work ethic you know (laughs) where I feel like I'm someone who I don't know like I, I might want kids I might want this and that out of life and you know i feel like you're told that like you know it's not you know when you're on your deathbed you're not gonna you're not gonna remember another day at the office you're not gonna remember you know working more you're gonna remember your relationships but i remember the work mm-hmm. you know and like it's funny like for me that's that's the hide part that i'm genuinely kind of afraid mm-hmm. to some extent of sharing with folks is that like i feel kind of broken yeah you know just like Mm -hmm. why don't I care more about things I'm supposed to care about as a human you know I that's really it's so funny that you're uh that you chose uh Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because a lot of like it seems like there's a lot of like themes in your life that really go uh that like hit close to that story and I Mm -hmm. think I yeah like the work life balance it's so hard i feel like it's some people just kind of hit it like naturally um it, it's funny because we've had guests on the show that are just kind of like ah eh, the work is just the work it pays the bills and, mm-hmm. then, and then we have guests like you who are like oh i just like working is is uh it's like a really important part of my life and it and it's that thing where it's like i don't know if you feel that sean as well but like for example for me over the summer i took a a very long break like a month and a half and i hadn't done that in a really long time and there and there were moments when i was bored and i was like this is such an uncomfortable feeling because i usually just 
I usually just work all the time. And so I'm never bored because I always have something to do. And, uh, yeah, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think like, so I go back and forth so much thinking what it's going to be like when this comic is finished. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because again, I've been doing that when it's done. I have worked on it for 10 years straight. That's a whole decade of my life. Wow. Um, yeah. I feel like I, I've, I think to myself often that like, it's very silly. And this is going to sound like a left, left turn. I swear it's not like, it's very silly that like conservative transphobes talk about like irreversible damage when of you know going on HRT and like transitioning when nobody talks about the irreversible da- irreversible damage of starting a goddamn webcomic <laughs> you know yeah. like that is 10 years of my life that I'm never getting back you know and they, I'm just allowed to just do this I know it's so funny that you mentioned that yeah it's because it's that thing where it's like you said you you're bringing like value and pro- mm-hmm. production to the world so that's like that's like a uh, something that is more acceptable in the way society works right now that's so funny and interesting like yeah um, so i should why wasn't where was my psychological evaluation like why wasn't somebody being like oh are you sure this isn't some underlying issue you're trying to work <laughs> out you know like you realize that making a webcomic is not going to solve all your problems right <laughs> yeah it's like it's like like telling a, a therapist that and they're like oh oh that this is a red flag we should talk about this you're trying to start exactly. a webcomic oh yeah. okay this is a warning sign I feel mm-hmm. like comedians do this joke, but about like podcasts. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, You're talking um, to yourself all the time. Oh my gosh. Room? Yeah. <laughs> but oh my gosh, I had I had another point that wasn't just me just reaching for that joke. Of yeah, um, but I try to envision what my life will look like when I don't have this comic, and like part of me is just kind of like oh, you're going to have so much free time. You can't even imagine how much time you'll have to take care of yourself and discover other hobbies and, you know, have a nice, beautiful living space. You'll have an Instagramable life. It's going to be so great. You can't even imagine how great it's going to be. And there's another part of me that's kind of like, you're going to just want to do another goddamn story. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know? I think it's that, Uh. like, dude, I'm so (laughs) worried about that postpartum blues, you know? It's just kind of like, you've, because when you filled your life with so much of it, it's like, for me, it definitely feels very similar to what I imagine parents feel, where it's like, you're, you have this like project that took years of your life. And just like when they're like, leave the nest and they're like, I don't Mm. know what my life is anymore. The good thing about Mm. webcomics is that you can keep, come having them come in forever <laughs> uh-huh that's true yeah yeah the quote-unquote cool thing about web comics <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's, it's it's like yeah it's cool it, it's like sisyphus is roll he's rolling the boulder up the hill like it's cool i can just keep rolling this boulder and it, yes! i just can always do it i'm always pushing this boulder and i love it uh, it i just i'm the only one that's gonna do it <laughs> i mean like there is like an upside to it i mean like again when i had my first development gig killed when i had my second and third one killed when i had my fourth one killed i'm gonna keep going i've done i've i've <laughs> i've experienced a lot of development um it's this is what happens when you develop uh while there's a massive industry turnover and netflix implodes but yeah can you definitely can you talk a little bit yeah. about the development and what yeah. that's like just kind of like to demystify it a little bit um totally 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 yeah um so on one level development is incredibly simple Um, How to get a development gig is technically you make up a concept, you write like a 10 page document being like, here's my story, here's some characters, here's some episode ideas, and then you 
message an exec, a development executive being like, I have a story. Can I pitch it to you? And they say, yes. And then you're like, here's my story. And they're like, yes, we want to develop it or no, we don't. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there you get a deal um, that incidentally there'll be huge gaps in between these things happening. Um, it'll be, you know, six months before you hear from them again, but then you make a pilot. And then what that is, is you write a Bible, which is a larger version of that pitch you did. Um, and then you write a pilot outline, which is an episode outline. Then you write a script for that pilot. And then you make some character designs and then you animate, you not animate, then you storyboard a pilot, which is surprisingly similar to just boarding out a regular episode of TV, except that it is coming from nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, depending on how cheap the studio feels like being, maybe that's all you'll do. Maybe you'll actually get like a pilot episode made that is fully animated. Uh, most studios don't do that anymore, mm. but in theory, that used to be how it was done. Um, and then the studio, you'll show it to the studio heads. Maybe they'll focus test it, you know, show it to some kids. And then based on uh, what the studio feels like greenlighting, what the focus test says, what the market is saying, what the economy is like, what this or that happened, what the head executive ate that day, mm -hmm. um, depending on a whole bunch of random factors, they will either say, yes, we want to make this or no, um, we want to shelve it. Mm -hmm. And that, in theory, is the entire process of development. Um, where it gets tricky is that it's my understanding that not just anybody typically can pitch, because in theory, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who want to pitch at anyone, any given moment. Now, anyone, you know, if you go to Hollywood, it's a cliche to be like, you know, everyone's going to walk up to you and be like, have you read my screenplay? Mm -hmm. Like, everybody's got an idea. We all know this. So, like, there is a bit of a culling process. I understand it. Um, I am not super familiar with this side of things because one of the ways you can get into a position to pitch is to be already working at a studio mm -hmm. and then periodically development executives will be looking for people to pitch new ideas and they can literally just walk up to some artists on a crew and be like, anyone got an idea? And then that's your end to pitch. That was my end to pitch. Mm. Um, or you could sign with a manager, um, which I ended up doing after my first development deal fell through. And then that manager will help set up relationships with executives. Mm -hmm. So you probably need to like build a relationship with an executive somewhere or another, whether that's working in a studio or, you know, having signing with a manager. Um, so you need the, the getting that foot in the door is a little bit of a tricky Someone process. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Um, and I will say what is also tricky that I think Matt Brawley first told me, and I was like, this sounds insane, but it is absolutely true in a weird way where like they're not in some ways so much signing on to your project as they are to signing on to you as a person yeah. that's what i heard that's um, what i keep hearing yeah that's yeah why you can do so, multiple pitches even though one doesn't get picked up they're still like yeah. you maybe it's just not mm -hmm. the right idea for them yeah yeah and like that's very difficult to describe yeah. um that is a combination of like are you someone who is pleasant to work with? Are you not a jerk? Mm -hmm. um, are you someone who takes feedback well? And that's two parts. Part one is like, do you not go and do you not, you know, attack people who try to give you criticism? <laughs> that's bad across the board. That's something you should always learn. Mm -hmm. But also, do you apply feedback well? When someone gives you a note, do you understand it? And do you know how to apply that in a way that will satisfy that mm -hmm. note? Which again, is the sort of skill that is honestly easier to learn on the job. It's very, very intimidating when you first start, but once you get used to it, you can get used to it. And like, it is a skill you can build. Mm -hmm. And let's see, what's what's another important thing? The it factor. Um, Do you have that it <laughs> factor? 
<laughs> no. I'm... Oh, you mean are you a straight white man? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um... who's, who's, who's quirky? Who has a unique vision? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, unique yet palatable, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because um, it's... it's. It is definitely also. It gets, there's an it factor there, which is sort of hard to quantify for sure. Because it's like, no, but it's also interesting. That, um, cause, so you've developed with uh, Disney and Netflix. Uh, mm -hmm. And I feel like every studio has a different kind of vibe i feel like for example you might do really well i'm just like saying random things like uh, an mm. artist might do really well at cartoon network and do really poorly mm. at disney for example just because the vibe is so different yeah i mean i think for me a big difference between disney and netflix and again this is a point in favor of you know getting work experience first getting studio experience first is because i had worked there there was a little bit more innate trust there mm. And also, they trusted me more to be more involved in the writing, even though I don't have what are considered the correct writing credits. I have writing credits, but that's not what they consider a true writer, which is to have worked in the writer's room, to have a freelance script, whereas I'm a board artist who's written episodes. That doesn't count mm. for, the, for most people, unfortunately. Interesting. Um, there's a lot of politics involved, but because... You know, I'd worked there for so long, people knew me, actually, there was a little bit more trust, mm -hmm. whereas at Netflix, or I imagine another studio, would be more like, they're more likely to, to categorize me first, mm -hmm. and to be like, oh, this person is artist, they don't have thoughts, they can't write, mm -hmm. they, we must pair them with a big, strong, manly writer. I see that a lot. Who can, <laughs> who can guide yeah. them, these poor, thoughtless artists through these, like, free spirits, I I don't have any resentment about this at all. Well, just any old story is good um, as long as you draw it pretty. And so that's what they think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, that's that was definitely a difference between studios. I will say that, like, I think Netflix is one of those studios that like, is very committed to not having a strong, a specific vision. Um, Disney definitely does. You know, Disney, I think, of the main studios is definitely very it's aware of its own brand and its own history and playing to that brand, mm, you know? Okay. Would you, could you talk, have you ever been in a room, for example, at Disney and been asked like, oh, could you change like the specific aspect of your idea so it fits more with the brand? I actually really wasn't that much. Hmm, interesting. Honestly, like I was surprised. I feel like I went in very armor up expecting most of the notes from the executives to be like, how do we make this more Disney and family friendly mm -hmm. and fluffy and light? It, the majority of executive notes that I've gotten from creative exec from like development executives have actually been just like, this story doesn't work. Mm. This third act is broken. This character motivation doesn't work. Actually like legitimate, you know, like care, like questions about structure mm -hmm. and story. And I feel like I have definitely gained a lot of respect that I wouldn't have had for creative executives specifically mm -hmm. in that realm. Like they actually like they're often pretty decent at identifying like story problems. Mm. But uh, you know, of course, there was the other side of the job where it's very business and trying to make things marketable. Mm. What I did get a lot um, that I think I've I've tried to struggle with in various different ways, and it's actually currently the reason that I think I'm kind of taking a break from development aside from the fact that I am mailing out a thousand tiny packages right now <laughs> and thing, um, is that it's less trying to match a specific studio style and more about trying to fit any particular mandate any particular time you know mm. like a mandate might be oh 
we've discovered that our audience is primarily young girls of color. <laughs> now all of our main characters have to be young girls of color, even if it wasn't planned that way, even if it's shoehorned in, even if our creators are not uh, women of color. Interesting. Um, it could be, oh, the algorithm has decided that us all of our shows should be like Boss Baby. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to dis- to, dis- to discern what determines like Boss Baby, but we are going to enforce it uh, with a complete and utter um, ruthlessness. Mm. And that changes quite quickly. It tends to change every few months. And I would say this, I, I imagine like most people who've been through development have probably complained about this, of having a mandate change halfway through mm. your show and then getting notes to gently guide you away from what the show was originally about towards this mysterious mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you know what the mandate is. Sometimes you only figure out after your show's been canned, oh, that's the note they were trying to get the whole time. They were trying to make all my characters blue and they were yellow and they didn't like that. Um, I think there's a reluctance oftentimes to even tell you what the mandate is, you know? Oh, I see. Um, it's kind of like, because like... They, it's that weird thing where it's like they want it to come from the creator and not from them, kind of, I guess. I, I think it's, I always see it as a little bit like they see us as like little sheep and they can't spook us or else we're going to like stampede or something. Oh, interesting. Um, like you're, you're delicate little artists. We can't or, or, do, or do you think that it's more, or, or you think it's more like like they don't know what whether it's working until they see it like they're like completely vibes like oh, that's you know completely vibes yeah there's a lot of vibes like i mean have you guys seen barry yeah, yeah. i i'm sorry yeah i love yeah. that show mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite shows you know oh my god the season three arc for sally and her yes. show was just like so heart-wrenching yeah. and upsetting but just like the meeting with the exec which is like yeah the show is kind of hmm yeah we want to be more like hmm. yeah <laughs> I'm like, yep. <laughs> yeah. That was so good. We've all had those meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting how that's definitely it's hard. interesting how um like pitch kind of like vibes mm-hmm. like like uh it's one of the reasons why for a lot of pitches people set up like general pitches because before you even pitch a show, sometimes you want to know like what is this studio mm-hmm. even looking for right now? Like I, I like when when yeah. I was first when I first started pitching, I pitched to um, Nickelodeon, and they were like, "We want nothing but two best friends, <laughs> two best friends, they love forever, best friends. a billion pilots, two best friends." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because Nickelodeon is such a weird studio to pitch at. I love Nickelodeon; it's still one of my favorite studios that I've worked at, but they're very skittish. Uh, I didn't realize because they're always like we want pitches and we're doing this shorts program and we're doing all these things but then you pitch and you talk to everyone and it, they're very skittish they're like oh yeah we, we, we love it we love it um, um, we'll get back to you it just seems like they never pick up any <laughs> yeah. of the pitches is what yeah, it seems yeah, yeah, yeah. like it just seems like yeah, they make Nick, a billion Nickelodeon pilots Nickelodeon and... kind of notorious for that mm-hmm. <laughs> I, but, I, but I, I still love Nick even though, even though they're so weird <laughs> Yeah, I think what's been tough for me, because I feel like when I first was getting those mandate changes, I was very resistant to it mm-hmm. of like, no, I need to be, because like my first show had been Alex Hirsch when I saw him really fighting the execs and really, mm-hmm. you know, like, I feel like one of the reasons people often say like, oh, I didn't even realize Gravity Falls was a Disney show is that like he had such, he was such a fighter, you know, and he would fight 
everything. And he would have these like long arguments with S&P trying to get stuff through, trying to make it less bubbly and sweet and, mm. and inoffensive. And I think in his particular case really succeeded. But what I'd kind of internalized, like, oh, that's the way to do that. Oh, I see. What I had realized mm. is that like, one of the reasons he was able to do that is because he's a straight white dude. And also by the time that I was seeing him do that stuff, he already had a hit show. It was already a yeah. hit. So he had all this leverage. Also, we can't forget, he voiced four of the main characters. Yes. So he was unfireable. You know? something- I mean, this is before Justin Roiland again. So No, yeah, it's it's uh, that's so true that what you mentioned about Justin Roiland and how they, like everybody was like, oh, that he's never going to be able to leave the show. Like they're never going to be able to fire him because he does a voice and they finally yeah. found a loophole and they, and they were mm-hmm. like, nope, we ch- we're changing your voice. But uh, but it's but that was like also something that I heard because of how, as a showrunner, you sometimes don't make as much as you would think, and and doing a voice, mm-hmm. you actually get a lot more royalties because of the way the contracts are um, laid out. Um, so it's not only for job security, yeah. but it's also for like mm-hmm. residuals that you sure. would get more of as a voice actor rather than as a showrunner, which is interesting. That is true. I've, I've heard like whispers about that. I've heard a couple of things in that space, not really enough to speak confidently about mm. it, but I can definitely see that being the case. Mm. Um, but anyway, so I'd heard like my experience was like him and fighting, fighting, fighting. Um, and so I thought that was the way to do things, not realizing that I'm not a straight white man. And also that um, the studio had very much changed since that time mm-hmm. um you know the the long-running head of the studio who had been the studio head under what, what when gravity falls was being made had left there was a new regime in town the new regime was much more market testing mm. and demographics and doing the thing that is get that is best for the studio it was no longer creator driven mm-hmm. and so fighting 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 is not a good strategy when you're up against the algorithm mm-hmm. you know it is just not and so, you know, ultimately the things I fought on, I, I ultimately, I'm also, I feel like, again, there was a mandate change halfway through. I don't think there really necessarily was a version of the story that would have satisfied that mandate. It was too different. Mm-hmm. The, the mandate was basically Loud House. Oh, that's so to- interesting. All the studios want to make Loud House. They wanted the Loud House. Yeah. And like, yeah. like as a result, mm-hmm. like there, there's just no version, no, no, no shade to that show at all, but like, it's so not my sensibility. There's just no world in which that is going to happen with me. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that, like, I think shortly after my first show was canned, um, I met with development for Cartoon Network, and they're like, oh, we really want to do just, like, light sitcoms right now. And I just kind of stomped around for a while. I'm like, oh, fine. You want a sitcom? How about a sitcom set in a Japanese incarceration camp? <laughs> that's how one of my pitches got uh, i developed a pitch that I actually like it's not set in an incarceration camp but it is a sick like a light fantasy story where the villain is anti-japanese racism <laughs> set in the 1930s but like that's that was me grouchy like you want a sitcom i'll give you a sitcom, the darkest I don't sitcom, like sitcom. ever I, I, yeah yeah yeah, I, yeah that that kind of energy at the time mm-hmm. so i was never going to make a loud house in that space but definitely looking back i'm kind of like I was I was fussing and trying to put my foot down on things that really were not worth it. Mm-hmm. And then the second time around, I was very much like, oh, I'm really going to try and hit this mandate and I'm going to try really hard. 
But again, man, it was way too far removed from anything that it could be. The fundamental premise was not friendly to the mandate. And then by the time I got to my most recent project, I was not only trying to hit a mandate that was actively wobbling around as I was trying to hit it to the point that I wasn't even being told what the mandate was. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also supervising directing full-time at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so like, I wasn't even able to like focus what my true intention was and was trying to uh, wrangle co-writers mm -hmm. and like yeah. get everybody on the same page. It was so frustrating. a mess. And so like, I feel like at this point, I have gone so much in the other direction of trying to be accommodating and trying to do the notes and trying to fit the mandate and understanding that executives are under a lot of pressure and trying to make their jobs easier for them that I really feel like I kind of lost touch with my voice, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, I feel like I'm going to need to take a break, just focus on the glass scientist for a while, just focus on like, God, you know, screw trends, screw algorithms, screw market data, screw all of this. And just like, what, kind of stories am i naturally drawn to yeah, yeah. you know because mm -hmm. you can lose track of that yeah that's so true I, I think it's very easy to lose track of uh your sensibility and who you are as an artist and animation it, it it's yeah. you definitely need to uh pay attention to your to yourself to your creative self mm -hmm. there's some pitfalls there working uh in in pitches too long because when you work in when you work in pitches and you're working in that space all the time you're very used to being very accommodating to notes and compromising mm -hmm. and asking like is this okay does this work for you and then when you're working on your own stuff you're like oh i'm the only person to give myself notes uh mm -hmm. do i go with the thing that is going to make the most people happy do i go with the exciting thing mm -hmm. and that and that mm -hmm. gets uh kind of scarier like you can like lose yourself yeah. a little bit there i think where the tipping points started to happen to me into kind of like being accommodating enough to get by but then kind of like pushing a little bit towards like loss of confidence was i think the most demoralizing times are when you put your foot down you push for something like no i believe in this i feel so strongly about this and then seeing it just like thud and then perhaps seeing you know someone do the do the note and that getting like applause and just kind of like maybe i'm just stupid you know oh, no. <laughs> just like maybe like okay like okay 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 so story um so for my second project it was a musical project it was super super fun uh that one is actually even though like the first project was my baby the second one is actually kind of the saddest that it didn't go through because it was just a super fun project and i got to write us do a demo song for it wow and for that project i got um six we got to audition composers wow. and so we got six people writing the titular the song that was going to be in the pilot and i felt extremely strong like my one note is that like i am not gonna do a goddamn inspirational anthem like and i think i wrote down like do not under any circumstances make this sound anything like Katy perry's fireworks as a 100 percent insta kill i've like i can't I'm, I'm i'm getting heated about even things i don't know like obviously no shade anyone like the song is obviously very popular for a very good reason i feel very very strongly <laughs> that like inspirational power ballads in animation that are done with the intention of being inspirational are just they, they bother me so much where it's like no, you shouldn't be trying to inspire people. You should try to be authentic with your emotions. You shouldn't be trying to have like a top 
one billboard hit that's going to be appealing to every demographic and inspiring, but in the most generic way possible. Like that shouldn't be your goal. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I picked my favorite one, but then all the executives were like, oh, we really love this one that sounds just like Katy Perry's fireworks. I'm like, no, that's the one thing I won't do. <laughs> and so I went with a song that I believed in and I still think it's a good song. Um, I'm very happy with it, but I will admit that when I try to think to myself, what did that song sound like? I can't bring it up in my head, but you know what I can break up in my head? That stupid Katy Perry's fireworks <laughs> one. And on a fairly regular basis, my partner will sing that melody to my cats because it's just that catchy because Katy Perry's fireworks works. It does. Like, yeah, that's the thing where you do, ah, it's so true. It's like, we are making a commercial media and, and, and at some point, like, that's such a great example that you just gave. There's a moment when you're like, gosh, I guess you, if you're making a musical type of animated show, you have to go with the catchy songs that are gonna, that people are gonna remember. Um, that's so interesting. That's but the tricky thing is then, of course, you go in the other direction and then the reviews come in and it's like, this is so predictable <laughs> and so generic. And you're like, but I was just trying to appeal to a demographic. Mm -hmm. you know? Just like, so like there's there's no winning. No matter what you do, it's going to. If you had to change you, anything, so. would you do that song mm -hmm. and find a way to subvert it or something like like make it sarcastic or make, like like what would you do differently? I want to. Oh, my gosh, that's a good question. Like. I can literally, oh my God, I hate that I literally can hear it in my head right now, <laughs> even though I haven't listened to it. In years. I think what I would want to take forward, and I think my big lesson for that is that hooks matter Yes. in songwriting. Mm -hmm. Hooks are really important. And I think I want to take that lesson forward and make a hook that doesn't make me want to scream. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because it doesn't have to be yeah. inspirational think, to be a yeah. catchy hook, too, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. I have like a particular, I have such an allergy to like inspirational storytelling um, or like also the, the phrase that I was hearing a lot kind of like second half development was like aspirational characters, Yeah, characters that are cool that you want to look up to. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to watch a story about a character I look up to. I like, to some extent, I want to watch a character that's going to make me want to go like, woof, at least I'm not that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I want to see my worst, most embarrassing, most shameful parts of myself reflected back on me so I don't feel like so much of a loser, you know? Uh, that's what I tend to go for, but that's a hard pitch to an executive, you know? Yeah, I think it's like, um, it's so it's so funny that you mentioned that because def I definitely remember being in rooms and hearing aspirational being thrown around a lot. I don't know if that's still mm -hmm. something that you're doing now because it definitely feels mm -hmm. like it was something that was uh, big like five years ago. But it's funny because I feel like aspirational characters. I don't. I, I don't. I don't know if this is what you, works the best for the mainstream. Actually, I feel like when you think about characters, mm -hmm. like SpongeBob, isn't really aspirational. I don't think people watch SpongeBob and think like, "Oh, I want to be just like him." Or uh... see, I'm like, I'm I'm so executive poisoned at this point that I can. I can imagine the executive aspirational pitch of SpongeBob. Like he's so positive and he, he never he gives up. Always has a positive outlook on life. Mm -hmm. oh, I, I get that part of my brain. Just remove it, please. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a way to do instead of aspirational um 
relatable like like oh yeah. like yeah. that's yes. totally me fucking up or oh that's a person mm -hmm. that looks or acts a little bit like me and it makes me feel like i could be in this i could be in this world or whatever and that makes sense but yeah. having someone who's like mm -hmm. i'm the cool kid i'm always wearing the coolest stuff i'm hey arnold i have the coolest new york apartment room and everybody wants my room you know whatever yeah, that's not why you watch Hey Arnold. You <laughs> yeah, know? Exactly. It's the room. Like, yes. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, relatable is definitely a thing. I think the pitfall with that one is that, like, then if your executives don't look like you, if they didn't have a childhood that looked like yours, mm -hmm. then that's not relatable. And that's, I think, where people from minority backgrounds can really have a disadvantage sure. because, you know, there yeah. can be visual triggers where someone's like oh that's not relatable to our audience uh, mm. you know, like, oh oh I, i'm not racist oh i i would never be prejudiced but our audience or the algorithm mm -hmm. you know i i'm simply subject to their yeah you know, they want you know something that is you know universal which yeah. has certain implications you but, know no that's really true because i feel like i i kind of had that discussion with an exec one time when they were telling me like oh it's interesting you're french you should just make something about that and then i was <laughs> i had actually the the opposite reaction where i was like i just don't know if people are going to like relate to it and i kind of went hardcore into like let's just kind of lean into the white suburbia kind of thing and and mm -hmm. and, I, and i feel like even though there's you know like they'll be just like no 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 we want the thing that's you um i'm i'm just kind of playing it safe by being like because i have mm -hmm. i have lived in american white suburbia so i can kind of like um talk about it enough that it feels real enough in a way uh mm -hmm. yeah and, and it's kind of like yeah it's an interesting thing because yeah it's it's it yeah i, I feel like that's that's kind of like the 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 because because you are making the content primarily for the u.s and then it get exported mm -hmm. out to the world but um that's really mm -hmm. interesting i think there's a there's a podcast not a podcast there was an, a youtube episode um from this video essayist um who is called oh my god i'm blanking on their name right now it'll hopefully come for me um they're a bisexual non-binary creator and they cover a lot of kind of like the intersection of like queer media and capitalism mm. which is very bleak mm -hmm. but like a real just kind of like splash of cold water of reality cold water mm -hmm. and they had a theory where it's like yes we're getting all these queer characters getting all these queer stories we're getting heart stoppers we're getting you know a million first gay characters on, at disney but there is a certain pattern to what kind of queer stories are being told, what kind of queer characters are being featured. Mm. And their belief is that a mainstream studio will never make a queer story that is not secretly for a straight audience. That makes a you lot know? of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That like, or at least that doesn't alienate a straight mm -hmm. audience. Yeah. And oftentimes that can be in the space of like, oh, well, this has to be somehow educate queer, you know, straight allies and how to be a good straight ally. Or this needs to be a really wholesome story that shows a very wholesome, 
you know, version of queerness. Mm -hmm. And so there's a limit to how much they're willing to go. And there's a certain story that is going to be propped up over others. Not that people can't enjoy those stories, not that those stories can't be wonderful and authentic to the people creating them. But from the capitalism point of view, mm -hmm. there are some stories that will be told and some won't. And I feel like this kind of goes back a little bit to what you are talking about earlier with social media and like, they want you to be authentic, but not too authentic, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that also has definitely gotten me down in the past of like, with my first project, I kept my personal stuff really kind of close to the chest mm -hmm. and was encouraged to like, oh no, explain very explicitly your personal background, your ethnic background, your, you know, minority background and how that has contributed to you and your vision which that that does mean that when your show gets shelved as the majority of shows will mm -hmm. it feels like they're actually shelving you as a person yes you know mm -hmm. yep it's as if they've encouraged you to slowly just kind of like tear yourself open and show your guts mm -hmm. to the executives and then they just looked at me like nah you're not like, relatable that's, that's hard yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's really that hard you're not relatable that's so yeah, hard it's, it uh -huh. really it's really hard it's really hard i think a part of me yeah a part of me kind of like wishes we could go back to a time when you you don't have to put so much of, of your personal life into pitches because because mm. of that feeling because of that what you just talked about mm. like when you get turned down it's like oh like <laughs> my life is yeah. like and then and then you have like 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 crazy things happening like the primos uh oye primos mm. the debacle yeah. where it's like wow well now this person has put themselves out for everybody to 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 just like like tear apart online that's just so and, then, and then people are like your lived experience is racist to us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then it's no. like fuck like i mean like yeah, I it's it's a mess, and you it's made so personal, and and it's weird because it's such a different point of view of making cartoons than yes. like mm -hmm. Rocco's Modern Life or something. Like I'm trying to yes. imagine mm -hmm. them saying the same stuff to like the the Rocco's Modern Life guy, being like, okay, so you're gonna want to ma make sure that we put your ethnic background into this, and uh, and your mm -hmm. religion. Like, let's talk about that. Like, how did you grow up? You know, do you have any trauma? Like, put that in there, and and yeah, I don't know. It it it's a uh, it's like they want it to feel so real and relatable. But the thing is, is like the more related, the 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 more of you you put into it, the less universal it is. The less of a, a blank emoji it will be that people can put yes. their own experience on. You know, you're making this character so mm -hmm. specific that there's going to be people that are like, I I don't this doesn't make sense to me i wasn't born this way <laughs> whatever yeah absolutely and i think yeah i think what i would love to happen is if studios you know i i think pushing for authentic stories from authentic perspectives the positive side of that it is kind of the the few times when they are actually incentivized to give platforms to people of minority status mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. You know, before that, it could be enough to seem to have a very diverse set of stories, but they're all run by middle-aged white mm -hmm. dudes, you know? So I think, I do think in many ways, the uh, push for authentic representation is a lot better than the alternative. Mm -hmm. um, but it 
puts people in this incredibly vulnerable space. And I wish that when studios said, we want to support authentic creators, we want to support diversity, that one of the things they were willing to acknowledge is that there is a lot of hatred in the world. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of trolling. There is a lot of, oh gosh, you know what? I don't even like, okay, I'm going to actually pause. I actually don't love how I phrase that because like, I don't want to imply like every criticism of a creator is like, oh, it's just haters or like it's hatred. That's ridiculous. Mm. A lot of criticism is, you know, perfectly valid. Oftentimes people who are even reacting in a shitty way, there's usually like some, some basis for it, you know, Mm -hmm. or like, you know, I, I would argue that, you know, uh, caveat not being Latinx of any kind, I, I'm not will not speak for anybody, but like it's my impression that like a lot of it was just like oh like people from you know Latinx backgrounds can have very very different experiences mm-hmm. and they may not be aware of the different versions of experiences sure. and therefore perceive you know Natasha's as inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it was coming from a bad place necessarily, but you know even within that. I think there's a very toxic way to react to it where the pattern I saw online very, very frequently was, you know, people had like a list of things that were bad about the 30 second clip that they saw. Mm -hmm. And what people could just do is just toss out those 10 or three of those points, like a punchline when any, whenever anyone tried to argue against it Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a real argument. It wasn't a real discussion it was more of a joke, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, well, they did this, this, and this. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. I think that bums me out, the quipification yeah. of discussion online, you know? Um, that I don't love. I feel like that is not really having an authentic conversation. It is just kind of one-upsmanship. It is, you know, so-and-so destroyed so-and-so. I don't, I'm not a big fan of that. Yeah, because that's the way that, like, online like these online platforms have been designed is just for it, it's not really made for conversation it's kind of more made for uh like you said one up one liners uh, yeah. yeah yeah one liners mm-hmm. and like um but yeah like mm-hmm. that can get to a really toxic place and then on top of that you know a lot of shows are attacked by the very like much more you know traditionally hateful side of things of like you know the alt-right mm-hmm. or um you know just like very mean animation fans who don't see us as workers mm-hmm. <laughs> or people and when they get riled up they can do incredible psychological damage to a creator and i think that a lot of studios aren't prepared for that they're not willing to defend people they're not willing yeah. to protect people from that backlash mm-hmm. and instead they're just kind of like what we just thought if we gave women a platform that like everyone would love it like what do you mean that <laughs> anime fans aren't feminist what do you mean I, like they're just surprised yeah, like, what I do you to jump in to help yeah you know, with any of those situations sorry i kind of i wish that they would i don't know i wish there would be a little bit more of like a studio like like a like that the studios would organize a little bit more of a uh do's and don'ts about like when a show's about to get announced because i feel like 
I feel like social mm. media is so crazy that it would be it would be mm. so much better if there were some gui guidelines like for example just basic stuff like hey if you see some hate on the announcement do not interact no matter mm. who you are on the crew like because I feel like that's the thing is like sometimes it gets it gets lost uh, to the crew that that you shouldn't you shouldn't interact with the hate you know you can be taken as an <laughs> yeah. official source if you're on the crew exactly if you yeah, yeah 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 and it's like you have ah oh, gosh you have to be so careful because sure. it's like your personal life and your professional life becomes enmeshed on social media yeah yeah it's dark yeah. man <laughs> <laughs> i um we have a ton of questions from oh my gosh we did not get to any of the questions we didn't get to it's any like of two hours in but i do oh i'm gonna God. give a couple of shout outs because we did kind of go over a couple of the questions uh okay from youtube prof uh, professor underscore snake asked what art school did you go to and you mentioned it a couple of times mm -hmm. yeah i can do the lightning yeah. round yeah 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 <laughs> from at user dash ug Oh, oof, this is a complicated name to read out. UG3ST5EC2D. What was your inspiration for the glass scientist? And how did you find the time to work on him while working in animation? I do think I answered yes. that one pretty in depth. Yeah. I, so I feel like we got that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I do. Um, uh, Clem, let's just keep the shout out to the username. I like to kind of have the yes, username please. shout out. Mm -hmm. From at AngelPearson696. We kind of talked about that just right now. Are they ask how do you deal with toxic fans and haters? Or let's hear your personal take on that sage. Like not just us talking about like the philosophy of it, but how do you mm. how do you deal with it? Like any tips? I mean, I've been quite fortunate that I haven't encountered all that much. On the whole, my readership has been really delightful. I found the vast majority of fans have been very polite and very nice. I think there were, I think on the star fandom occasionally got pulled into a little bit of drama. Mm -hmm. I think what I would do now is just like, if there's drama, I am at most an extremely distance moderator because intra fandom drama is a whole world that I am not equipped to spit. I think for me, like acknowledging that like, I ultimately actually wasn't really involved in fandom drama growing up. I was like a weird fan who was very, who, I didn't really participate I would like read fan fiction stuff. I wouldn't like engage in a fandom. Mm -hmm. And I think I have to acknowledge that this is simply a world that is too much for mm -hmm. me. I, I, if I try to wade in, I will become swept up in it. I, it's too late. I'm too old. I can't do it. <laughs> so I just really intentionally keep a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, if I'm trying to drag, if I'm someone is trying to pull me into drama, I feel like if one is personally attacked and like the target of hate. I will respond if I am extremely confident that they are in the wrong. Mm. Like once I did have, like there were, like there, there's a couple commenters. Like I do keep an eye on the comment section of the last time. Just like a couple of people, they show pretty rarely, but I'll see that name and be like, oh, mm. someone's here to stir something up. <laughs> I mean, it's usually when queer stuff comes oh, up, yeah. you know, and you know, like someone tried to once claim that one of my characters, Lanyon, was a pedophile because he said, I like boys. And the commenter was like, he likes little boys? <sighs> you endorse pedophilia? I'm like, nope, shut up. This is very it's, it's very easy for me to, yeah. to respond to. But if it's not literally that cut and dry, mm. I am probably not responding at all 
if I am responding, I need to take a long break before I do. Mm-hmm. And let's see what other type of drama there is. And if it's, if it's for a show I work on, I have a little bit of an easier way of distancing myself because like I have to keep professionalism. I can't talk trash about anybody. I can't mm-hmm. start drama. And so like that need for professionalism and putting my professional relationships first gets me a long way. Yeah. Sure. That's a great, that's a great answer. We have, so our two patrons, Kay and brother to drummer, hi guys, uh, asked mostly about Gravity Falls and Owl House mm-hmm. and how um, these shows were kind of cut from their original scripts. Like, do you, how do you feel when like an episode gets cut, some pages get cut, get, get cut from like what you originally boarded and, and all that? Sure. Um, let's see, I mean, Gravity Falls, that was my first show. So I didn't really have a good reference point. And, you know, I trained in feature and feature cut shit left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so by comparison, I remember like seeing my first board become animated and be like, wow, it really did it. I just boarded something and then it became animation. <laughs> and so like, I was just like, I was surprised and shocked that anything I did actually made it to screen. Mm. So let's see. I mean, also I didn't have a ton blessedly that was redone on Gravity Falls. So there was like a couple, a couple sequences, but again, I think I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and just kind of okay with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, actually the one I had the hardest time adjusting to was Star because that was things where things were getting reboarded because your tone as an artist did not mesh well with the show. Oh, I see. That was actually extremely hard Take to adjust personal, to because yeah. I think yeah. the natural writing style of Star is actually very, very different from mine. Mm. I ended up actually developing a style of working. Um, this is the only time I've worked that way. I think I learned a lot on it. It's not how I naturally work, but I actually don't mind boarding this way where um, a lot of board-driven board artists will kind of write out a script first and then board to that. Mm. Um, I board first and get the vibes. Mm -hmm. I get the shot choice. I get the acting. I get the pacing, most importantly. Um, And then if a line of dialogue comes to me out of the ether, I'll write it down. Mm -hmm. And only when I'm about to pitch will I actually nail everything down and be like, this is the final dialogue. Mm. And that really helped me stay looser in the looser writing style that Star has. Mm. Um, And that helped a lot. Um, just really kind of adjusting my mindset, adjusting the way that I worked. Owl House, um, that was a first season show. So I think there was a lot more growing pains in terms of, you know, things getting cut. Um, I got very fortunate. I did not, no, I did have one episode that got like a page one rewrite. Oh, wow. That must be I tough. See, mm-hmm. But I did see one of our teams got a couple episodes cut and that will take a real hit on your morale. Mm-hmm. I think that's tough. I, I feel like probably, you know, as, as a showrunner, Certainly for me as a supervising director, I have to be aware that like, you know, your your artists are not an infinite resource. Mm-hmm. Like if if you run them down, they're out. You know, you can't just get that back. They're not gonna come back bright and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed the next mm-hmm. day. You know, mm-hmm. you have to take into account uh kind of the, their their health counter. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. So I think. It, it's hard to get a pre-run regret. You know, I think that's true of any situation, you know? Mm. And I think I was in a fairly fortunate place where because they were doing a page one rewrite, we got a big pause in the schedule there. 
I think if I had to go back and like start from scratch the next day, that would have been really hard. And I would have been hard again, would have been hard for anybody in any situation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's no fun. I don't think anyone finds that situation to be particularly fun. I am in a way just fortunate that I've heard of many shows where that happens even like way, way more frequently of a very dysfunctional show. So I'm just glad that hasn't happened to me yet. That's so <laughs> That's so scary just hearing about that. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <sighs> we have a lot of uh, questions from Instagram. Um, I'm just going nice. to give okay, let's hear them. a little bit of a uh, shout out to at ink underscore KG. Hi, KG. Do you have a favorite storyboard you worked on for a show? That will probably have to be um, my season three finale of Star. That was the big star versus meteora fight so i got to do a big giant monster fight plus it was eclipsa versus meteora eclipsa is my favorite character on star by a long shot um i worked on the first episode that she showed up in i feel a lot of ownership of that character of course it's darren's character and i got to design all of her spells i based her spells off of sailor pluto these kind of death themed spells and i don't i just feel like i got a lot of ownership in it i got to really push push myself and do a scene I was really excited about that was really dramatic and fun so it was that was just a delight that was super fun um that's 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 great that's a also really in depth I those are some like really fun questions from hollow underscore dollius this is kind of silly mm-hmm. but what made you want to give Jekyll uh Jekyll red eyes and hide green ones I love them a lot and I would love to know <laughs> Okay, uh, the, the simple answer is that um, the way that the potion works in the book is that it starts off, I'm pretty sure this happens in the book, oh my god, I feel like I get, at this point I, I get adaptations confused, but I believe in the original novella, it starts off as a red potion and then Jekyll adds a final ingredient and it turns green. And that actually does happen in the comic, you see it I think in chapter three, so that's, that's a simple reason. Um, other reason is just that like, I feel like so typically the red-eyed characters are the evil ones, so I just wanted to flip that. And I wanted Jekyll to be very perfect in the beginning, but also like a little bit eerie, mm. you know, just like a little bit too perfect and to have a little bit of kind of like a, a Stepford Smiler aspect to him. So yeah, that's the red eyes help with that. Yeah, I think that's really cool. That like what you said, uh, giving the 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 good guy the red eyes. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, we I'm just gonna give a shout out to ordinary un- underscore Ruby fan Rad one. ZH question from which pup prompt? Thank you so much, you guys, for all your questions. Uh, M. Elena, Jay-Z, Jay-Z, Lumen Starshine, Abby Smart. I just want to ask a couple Twitter questions because uh, I want to highlight that as well from at Kago, from at Kagome Mora. What's your favorite part about writing The Glass Scientist? Do you have a favorite moment so far? Oh, um, I feel like I have like a lot of favorite moments because I've been working on it for so long I feel like I often highlight the the scene there's a scene in chapter five where kind of Hyde has been in control and has been um, not in control but he has been very aggressive and kind of like very much like the spooky alter ego uh in that kind of traditional sense of you know the 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 the, the meme of like the, the one slur and like the once the one cest where like the evil one slur is like coming out of the mirror um, I'm not sure if anyone remembers the yes, one. Yes, I love like, that oh, you're talking about this. Um, it's so funny. <laughs> and like the evil alter ego who's kind of sexy and tempting you to the towards the dark side. 
but chapter five is the first time that gets completely turned on its head and Jekyll is actually the, actually the one who gets the upper hand and reveals that like he's like when Hyde crosses a line he's just like nope fuck you you're done and I am more than willing to you know just repress this part of myself for my career mm. and I think it was really fun to write that turn that was one of the major things I was excited to write when I first started the story mm. of that I didn't just want it to be the the one slur fan fiction I wanted it to be one where it truly is you know equals mm. where you don't really know who's going to get the upper hand at any one point in time so yeah that's that was a really fun scene to write I love that that I think that kind of answered a little bit the question from that underscore Irini Ur- she who asked what is your process like when you're writing a character in the glass scientist specifically also, a shout out to Erin Ishii. They're one of my most loyal readers. I, I love seeing them in the comment section. What was the question? Uh, what, what was the question? I'm like so sorry. your process for writing characters. Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, it's a little hard to say with the Glass Scientists because they've been in my head for so long. Mm. And they just kind of evolved very, very naturally. I feel like they kind of, I like to say, like percolated in a way, or they've just evolved very naturally over time. I think I do just try and drill down to something that is like an honest emotion I have usually one that I feel like I'm a bit afraid to show in public so I can show in like this fictional setting and have plausible deniability about I think like as a result as my views about like my own psychology change you know my writing on the character can change a little bit like my ending for Hyde has changed from its original iteration and yeah I mean like I would say I try to I try to go for the jugular at any particular scene. Um, I try and find like the juiciest way to access the character's pain points. But yeah, um, I think that's kind of how I come up with, with characters. I try and explore a part of myself and kind of isolate it and observe it in a scientific setting, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny because yeah, because it's like a scientist. Um, it's all scientists that. Uh, yeah. webcomic too that's really <laughs> funny um shout out to ad geeky theater kid and stella magic thanks for your questions we ran a little long so we can't get to all of you guys but thanks everybody for um asking questions they're all really great i was gonna ask you about creative vlog to wrap up the episode because we ask all of our guests like if okay. you have like if they have creative vlog and what it feels like and how if you have any tips and like how do you kind of like get mm-hmm. over it can you do you want to like take a quick stab at it <laughs> yeah um I think I tend to have creative block a lot about kind of like the feeling like I want to produce like a very polished and beautiful and well articulated piece of work so my way to get over it is kind of like the, the comic sans version of like I'm just gonna make it intentionally ugly and stupid sounding um and I I my specific favorite thing is like bullet pointing rather than drafting because mm-hmm. I get really hung up on like you know making sure these transitions are beautiful and making sure the wording is perfect and the flow is so nice which to me is very separate from the function of like is this story fundamentally working so instead of trying to write beautiful paragraphs I'll just like bullet bullet point one bullet point two bullet point three bullet point four Mm. and that allows me to just kind of like grab little pieces rearrange them and just it's kind of the equivalent i guess of like having like flashcards you know 
Um, so anything to kind of take off the pressure of it being perfect mm. is how I deal with it. That's great. Thank you so much for spending this evening with us, Sage. That oh, was this is so much fun. Yeah, that's so great. It was so it's so great to like hear all of your thoughts and like you you're like you have like very thoughtful answers and like observations about the industry and the creative process in general. So I thought it was like really, really great to have you come on and share all that with us. Thank you so much. Right off the bat you brought the stories. Yeah, I exactly. Love it. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um I mean I wish we could keep going forever but we all have to get back to work we have to return you to your uh, i literally do have to get back to work <laughs> yeah it sucks <laughs> so because of your uh what was was it worker chic exhausted worker chic chic uh, persona <laughs> this is uh <laughs> we have to make this episode come to an end, I am still working on my segues. They're not very good. No, that was um, good. But... You're learning. You're doing better. <laughs> this is what I do. Like this is my bit at every end of Creative Block. I I kind of like fish for compliments from Sean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Your segues are getting better. You're more getting more creative. You're listening. It's great. You're evolving. <laughs> Sage, thank you so much for being our guest and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. And uh, thanks to our listeners, too. Follow us on social media at CRTV Block, where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask our guests. Huge thanks to our editor, Clemens, for editing the podcast and Marco for helping us produce the show. If you love our show, then support us on Patreon. And um, becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews and access to your Discord community. Um, you may also support us by sharing, uh, liking, and just overall spreading the word about the podcast. Uh, growing more listeners is a great way for us to um, get support. Click the link in the description of this episode. I have been your host, V. Follow that uh, subscription. Honk that bell. Ding that horn. I was Sean. <laughs> Keep being creative. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Nice.